So we are now calling the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission regular meeting of February 13th to order. Can we have a roll call, please? President Paulson? Present. Uh, Vice President Rivera is excused from today's excused. meeting. Commissioner Jami? Here. Commissioner Maxwell? Here. Commissioner Stacy? Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Um, so before we get to the first item, I'd like to announce that the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission acknowledges that it owns and are stewards of the unceded lands located within the ethno-historic territory of the Molecula Ohlone tribe and other familiar descendants of the historically federally recognized Mission San Jose Verona Band of Alameda County. The SFPUC also recognizes that every citizen residing within the Greater Bay Area has and continues to benefit from the use and occupation of the Molecula Ohlone tribe's aboriginal lands since before and after the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission's founding in 1923. It is vitally important that we not only recognize the history of the tribal lands on which we reside, but also we acknowledge and honor the fact that the Molecula Ohlone people have established a working partnership with this SFPUC and are productive and flourishing members of the many greater San Francisco Bay Area communities today. So Donna, can you call the first item, please? Item number three, approval of the minutes of the January 22nd, 2024 special meeting January 23rd, 2024 regular meeting, January 26th, 2024 special meeting, January 29th, 2024 special meeting, and February 2nd, 2024 special meeting. So are there any corrections or comments on any of the minutes from these past meetings, commissioners? Seeing none, we will open this to uh, public comment, Donna. Do any members of the public pr present to provide comments on any of the minutes? See none. Seeing none, can we get a motion and second to approve the minutes for those um, numerous meetings? Can we have a roll call, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. We have four ayes. Item four, general public comment. Um, Donna, can you open? Yes, item four is general public comment. Public Members of the public may address matters uh, address the commission on matters that are within the commission's jurisdiction but are not on today's agenda. I have some speaker cards. First, Mr. DaCosta, Mr. Rosecrantz, Dave Warner, Denise Louie. And if you've not turned in a card, you can go ahead and sign, um, stand on the side. Commissioners, today I want to talk about our pipes, drinking pipes, sewer pipes, pipes leading to hydrants. So uh, we need a hearing on how you are going to address fixing the pipes on the west side that has now been transferred or was transferred because of insufficient money to the SFPUC. It's important that those hydrants have uh, the pressure if there is a fire. Otherwise, we'll have the same type of situation we had in Hawaii. Now, as to the citizens of San Francisco, we had agreed a long time ago when Karen Kubik was there that at least twice a year, we would get um, some sort of a report on the clean drinking water pipes and the sewer pipes that had to be replaced. 
they haven't heard anything. I know the pandemic came in the way, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a hearing. We need a hearing on those issues. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. It's always a pleasure to come to City Hall and see the happy people getting married in the hallway. It's, it's kind of a neat thing. Um, but I've come here today to correct the record from three weeks ago when I spoke to the substance of the MOA between the SFPUC and the National Park Service. In the ensuing discussion, the commission asked if there had been public review. Staff indicated it was the responsibility of the National Park Service. Uh, I'm not sure why it's the responsibility of one party and not the other. Um, however, on June 1st of last year, we asked the Park Service for permission to review the draft MOA. It was denied. We asked the PUC and the National Park Service in writing on June 19th in a letter to Mr. Herrera and the superintendent. Um, we didn't receive a response. Uh, on September 26th, we sent a letter to the Park Service uh, opining on some elements of the MOA as well as other things. I know the city generally and the SFP in particular prizes and proud, prides itself on the opportunity for public review uh, on, on issues before it. Um, there was no such opportunity in this case. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. I think it's me. I'm Dave Warner. Uh, thank you for your service. It really is an honor to speak to you today. Uh, two items. The first one, a quick request to ask that you reinstate remote public comment. Uh, some other commissions and committees have remote public comment, uh, including the Revenue Bond Oversight Committee, the Citizens Advisory Committee, and the Port Commission. These are just the ones I've come across. I haven't done a survey. The approach could be to reopen remote public comment as an experiment until such time there's any hate speech or other inappropriate behavior. Uh, ideally, that will never happen. Uh, please forgive me if this is an absurd request. I'm sure it's possible that you've heard more than you want from me. Item two, I'd also like to thank SFPU, the staff of the SFPUC for doing such a great job during our last set of storms. It demonstrates the years of experience and expertise that um, and professional operations that the company has, or business has, and we're very lucky to have them all. So thank you, it's a quality organization. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Warner. Next speaker, please. Uh, good afternoon, Denise Louie here, member of the Center for Biological Diversity and PUC customer. Again, I urge you to withdraw PUC lawsuits against the State Water Board and I'll give you a few reasons why you should remove the lawsuits. Here are the top three. One, because the Bay Delta ecosystem is verging on collapse. Two, because the PUC Water Enterprise Environmental Stewardship Policy states that the PUC, entrusted to responsibly manage resources, is committed to responsible natural resources management that protects and restores viable populations of native species and maintains the integrity of the ecosystems that support them for current and future generations. Three, because this policy, the Water Enterprise Environmental Stewardship Policy, says the PUC strives to be a leader in science-based environmental stewardship, meaning there's no basis for pursuing your voluntary agreements. 
Another reason for dropping the voluntary agreements and lawsuits is the city's general plan's environmental protection element, which directs the city to restore and improve the quality of natural resources and protect rare and endangered species and natural habitats, including the bay. There are even higher authorities, but this should be enough for you to meet your responsibility to immediately drop PUC voluntary agreements and lawsuits for the sake of our internationally recognized significant Bay Delta. Time is of the essence. The fish cannot hold on much longer as they are already threatened with extinction. And these policies and words don't mean anything if you don't take science-based and pro-environment action. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please come to the microphone. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Peter Dreckmeyer, Policy Director for the Tuolumne River Trust. Nice to see you all. Um, a couple of years ago, during one of the budget hearings, you had a very good conversation about the different demand projections used by the PUC. There is the water enterprise that creates the projections for the urban water management plan, and then there's the finance bureau that does the sales projections for the budget, and they've been very, very different. So I applaud you, especially um, Commissioner Ajami and at the time Commissioner Moran. Um, I thought it was so interesting that I dummied one up the next day and I thought, oh, this is gonna be interesting. And uh, we waited two months um, and no word about a response. So we um, encouraged then President Moran to add items that are requested by the commissioners at the bottom of the advance calendar, just so they wouldn't be forgotten which he did, and then a couple more months passed, and we said, hey, how about putting a date on that? So six months later in July, there was a great report, um, very honest, uh, that compared the two and found that the Finance Bureau over-projected some, and the Water Enterprise over-projected a lot. And that's really important information, especially when you're talking about things like the budget. So. I um, also really appreciated um, Commissioner Ajami on November 28th mentioned that it'd be good to know how lower sales would affect the budget and affordability. Um, that wasn't added to the advance calendar. I hope that process hasn't gone away, but um, that would have been good information to have. And finally, we're still waiting for the alternative water supply plan. The uh, draft was June 30th, and it's been seven months, so nice to see that on the advance calendar. And it'd be wonderful if we could get three minutes like we did before COVID. With COVID, a lot more people were able to participate, so it made sense to minimize it to two, but three minutes would be helpful. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next uh, speaker, please. Good afternoon, Commissioners Paulson, Commissioners Maxwell, and everyone else. My name is Liz Jackson Simpson. I'm the CEO of Success Centers, and we provide alternative education and workforce development services um, here in the San Francisco. And I'm um, speaking today on, on support of the SIP program. The SIP program um, provides um, education, workforce development, and arts um, services to community members, and I just want to ensure that this program stays intact. We have been beneficiaries of it. As you know, our, our grant dollars can only do so much, just provide training to people, but huge gaps um, in service exist um, from these very restrictive dollars. But these SIP program dollars allow us to provide things like tools and union dues, and one of my clients needed prescription goggles in order to go to work. These are huge barriers that keep people from getting 
getting into livable wage jobs. Um, additionally, on the back end, we continue to support and provide case management services once folks are even placed, because as we know, this is transient, very temporary work, and so providing that support to some of our constituents that go through 18 to 20 weeks of training every day to prepare and get ready for these jobs, we want to make sure that they continue to stay employed so that they can thrive here in our beautiful city of San Francisco. So I have some information here about how some of the SIP programs in partnership with WebCore and the Building and Trades Council have supported those of us um, in the Bayview Hunters Point community and San Francisco at large who provide these kinds of services. Um, we were recognized by the Department of Labor this past August um, for this very innovative intermediary that we've created that exists nowhere in the region, um, let alone in the city or the country. So I'll leave this information here for your review. Thank you for your time. Thank you for those words. Public comment, um, if you would like to speak, please come right to the microphone. Next. And if there are those, please come to the microphone. We will call you. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Mary Butterwick. I'm a longtime resident of San Francisco. At several meetings, members of the public have asked the commission to revisit its extremely conservative 8.5-year design drought, the primary tool used for managing flow releases. The 8.5-year design drought reportedly has a return period of once in 25,000 years. I do not believe this is a reasonable approach for managing flow releases on the Tuolumne River. This policy is particularly damaging to the riverine environment during dry periods when aquatic life needs adequate flows the most. I urge the commission to reduce the length of the design drought by one year, apply reasonable demand projections, and then present the results to the public. These actions would go a long way towards addressing the perceived water supply needs and hopefully would facilitate a meaningful dialogue on the in-stream flows needed to restore and maintain a sustainable population of fall-run Chinook salmon in the Tuolumne River. I also urge the Commission to drop its lawsuit against the State Water Board's Bay Delta Plan and work with the state to ensure flows in the Tuolumne are consistent with the in-stream flow standards adopted by the state in 2018. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Please. Um, we're on public comment. If you have general public comment that has nothing, that is not on the agenda that you would like to address, please uh, come to the microphone. Uh, if it's on the agenda, we will call that during the course of the agenda. Right, thank you. Are there any more um, folks um, for public comment? Okay, seeing none, are there any other um, folks that have that have called in seeing no more public comment um, we will go to um, item number five which is the report of the general manager thank you mr. president uh, nothing to report okay um, thank you so uh, we will um, go to item number six which is the consent calendar and I am going to ask, are there any commissioners that have any comments, questions, or um, about any of the items? Commissioner Maxwell. Thank you. I, I have a question regarding um, 6A. Item 6A, um, 
with that contract um, is I see that um, maybe Katie Miller could ask that question and maybe you have a question while she gets to the mic. Okay. Um, yes, it says that uh, the uh, staff um, proceeded to perform additional outreach and pursuant to consultant feedback. Um, so they revised the subconsultant qualification requirements um, because there was only one, there was, weren't enough people. And so I wanted to know what that revision was. It says consultant feedback revised the subconsult qualification requirements. Yes, uh, thank you, Commissioner. Uh, Katie Miller, uh, man, um, Director of Water Capital Programs. I do have some notes here, and I, can, I think I can answer that directly. Um, we reduced um, a couple of the uh, requirements in order to attract a, a greater, um, uh, uh, the greater consultant community. Um, so one of the things was there was an on-site mechanical engineer, and we reduced the on-site stationing requirement from 80% of the time to 50% of the time to make it easier for that person to be there. And we reduced the qualifications for that mechanical engineer from 10 to 5 years' experience. Um, there were also, we also modified language for qualification requirements to avoid uncertainty related to references to the term similar and in, instead refer to uh, quantifiable parameters. We also eliminated the restriction for subcontractor principal or partner holding a key lead position. The concerns related to the original language were mitigated by the inclusion of new requirement elsewhere must be an employee of the prime proposer or lead JV partner. So we tried to clean up the language, reduce the um, subconsultant requirements so that we could attract a, a broader community, and then reopen that, re-advertised it for bids. Did that work? Well, it did. Um, we also did several other things. We increased the uh, maximum allowable billing rate and we um, changed some of the uh, professional liability insurance requirements. Uh, that was something that we heard because it was dealing with the emergency firefighting water system. With some of the feedback that we got from consultants was they were concerned about liability with fire insurance. Uh, with the, um, and so I think with some of the consultants didn't bid because of that reason. Uh, so as you know, we even though we got zero bidders the first time, we did extensive outreach the second time. We still only got one bidder. However, the uh, firm is qualified, and we are looking forward to working with them. So, one of the one of the bigger issues was the insurance. I think so. It was a professional liability insurance liability. Yeah. concern. Okay. And so, are you thinking then? Is there anything else that you can do? Um, next time i'm hoping that this was uh unique to this contract and um but we did learn a lot about it um about one of it is um raising the maximum uh allowable billing rate to be more in line with market conditions um another is to reduce the sub consultant requirements so we can attract more local um jv partners some of the smaller firms for subs and JVs uh, to get a higher participation rate of our local contractors. Um, and those have carried through to our current contracts. So I think those will help us be more successful in the future and um, was good lessons learned from this. Great, right, thank you. Are there any other, uh, Commissioner Ajami? Ms. Miller, I actually was wondering, 
uh, when you reduce the subcontract requirements, did, um, I assume those subcontracts have not gone out yet, have they? Oh, no, they were part of the package. Okay. So it's, they are already included with the team that's being awarded. And then when you reviewed those, those reducing those requirements, did it have an impact? Or do you think partly the, the reason we did not get a lot of bids was because our um, uh, hourly rate uh, was lower? I'm just trying to understand which one of these changes led into at least getting one um, uh, bid. Yeah, I think it was a combination um, of all the things, the outreach, um, the liability insurance, and um, casting a broader net for subconsultants. Um, the higher billing rate did allow the consultant to bring on some specialists for this that we probably would have allowed by exception to contract you know after the fact but by al allowing it now it made it easier for them to bring on the specialists that we really want for this type of work uh, so i think that was helpful and um, reducing the uh, years for the um, for the uh, partners for the sub, sub consultants i think allowed us to tap into some of our local we did pick up one of our local uh, subcontractors on this contract so i think that was very helpful as well Commissioner Maxwell, follow-up? Thank you. Um, so do you have a process or a strategy for outreach so that your outreach is consistent? I mean, sometimes you don't do a lot, sometimes you do more. What, what that, do you have an um, outreach strategy well, to always one? try to get we do. the most people? We do. So why didn't you, why was this then, why did you have to go back if you always do, if you do? Afternoon, Commissioners. Stephen Robinson, Assistant General Manager for Infrastructure. Um, there is a standard normal process for us to engage with professional service consultants when we have a solicitation coming up with an RFP. Um, as Katie mentioned, this one felt a little bit unique for some of the reasons we've talked about today, perhaps primarily that liability, that concern of working on our emergency firefighting water system for San Francisco. Um, but our process for outreach can range in multiple different ways from publicizing um, publicizing on our website or with our contractors assistance center being vocal about what opportunities are coming up. We have occasionally different events where we kind of publicize things, but when we get into an actual project specific piece of work, um, we will reach out to different um, potential parties that could be interested in participating and making sure they're aware. In this case, that failed to produce a, a better the first go around, so then there was more outreach follow-up to understand what the concerns were so that we could reach out a second time. So usually you go back to the same people that you deal with all the time on certain projects. Um, we have the, the full list of the city certified local business enterprises, the LBEs, which is a standard way to communicate with everyone on the list, a citywide list. Um, and the larger firms or the firms who typically prime our work know how to go to our website and find out the upcoming opportunities. Sure. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Uh, I had a quick comment. Um, you know, I think we, the, maybe this goes back, I mean, the, obviously each project is different, but we do, we have been dealing with like not getting enough bids uh, for different um, RFIs or RFPs that we are putting out. And, and that is a little bit challenging because you don't know if you're really picking the right person or the best person. I mean, of course we are picking the right person, but the best Bit because if you have only one, uh, it's hard to <laughs> compare to other, op you know, other options you could have had. So it would be good to figure out how we can 
you know, improve that situation, if that means that we have to rethink budget, if, you, if that means that we have to rethink, uh, you know, other um, technical requirements, obviously we want to make sure everything is done right and to the quality. But we also have had some conversations about some of these technical requirements also, uh, depending on time and where we are, can impact our own recruitment internally as well. So it's kind of like maybe we can have a broader strategy around that. Um, but we do need to be able to get more than just one um, bidder for these projects. Some are more specialized, obviously, I do understand, but this is not just a loan case. There, Every other projects we have, often we don't get that many bidders. And then cost goes up. Yeah. Right. Okay, thank you, commissioners, and thank you, um, Stephen and Katie. Um, Commissioners, anything else on the consent agenda in terms of questions? Seeing none, let's open this to the general public. Item six, consent calendar. Members of the public to provide comment on the consent calendar. Seeing none. Seeing none, um, let's, um, can I get a motion or a second to accept the uh, consent calendar? Move to approve consent calendar. Second. Moved and seconded. Can we have a roll call, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have four ayes. Okay, thank you. Item seven, consent calendar passes. Item seven, um, approve the umbrella contract. Item, uh, read item seven, please. Uh, item seven, item seven, approve the umbre umbrella memorandum of understanding between the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission and the San Francisco Unified School District with the duration of 40 years, which establishes the partnership framework for the SFPUC installation and operation of various green infrastructure projects on San Francisco Unified School District properties, subject to the approval of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and the San Francisco Board of Education. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Uh, Joel Prather, Acting Assistant General Manager for Wastewater Enterprise. Uh, what we're bringing here before you today is an approval Request for approval is an important umbrella MOU between the San Francisco PUC and the San Francisco Unified School District to deepen our partnership on green infrastructure. This MOU is the product of years of collaborative work between our staff and the staff of the San Francisco School District, Unified School District, sorry. Um, as you know, the intent of our green infrastructure strategy is to deliver our core service of stormwater management while providing multiple benefits to our ratepayers. Um, this collaboration is, an, is a perfect example of that. The school district is one of the largest landowners in San Francisco. Uh, their campuses include over 300 acres of impermeable surfaces. Managing stormwater from these services will help PUC meet our green infrastructure goals. Um, while the school district will work towards their schoolyard greening and eco-literacy goals. Together, we will work towards making these projects transformational for kids and families of the city by giving them better access to nature, educating them about San Francisco's watersheds, nurturing a culture of environmental stewardship, and helping them form positive connections with nature and our work here at the San Francisco PUC. Uh, lastly, I want to give a big thank you to our partners at SFPUC Infrastructure and at the School District. Uh, it's truly been a team effort between all of our groups. And with that, I will hand it over to Sarah Bloom from our Wastewater Enterprise Urban Watershed Team. She's been direct working directly um, and involved directly with putting this MOU together and will summarize the details of the agreement. 
Thank you, Joel, and hello, commissioners. Um, I want to start by acknowledging the partnership with San Francisco Unified School District that started over 15 years ago around green infrastructure and schoolyards. By starting small with a handful of demonstration projects that were designed to both manage stormwater while providing educational and stewardship opportunities to students, we were able to build on those successes and scale up our investment through our various grant programs that we now have in place. And now we will be scaling up that investment even further as we begin to work together through this agreement on capital green infrastructure projects. The agreement before you today is what we have named our umbrella MOU, which establishes the general framework for our partnership, including overall objectives and roles and responsibilities between our two agencies for all phases of a project, from planning all the way through ongoing maintenance. However, the agreement before you today does not commit us to any specific projects. You will see in Appendix A1, the site agreement document. These individual site agreements will be the mechanism by which we authorize a project on a specific school site and will include more detailed project information and responsibilities. <coughs> These individual site agreements will run for 30 years, which is consistent with the asset life of our capital green infrastructure. And when a project is proposed, that site agreement will be brought to this commission and the Board of Education for approval and incorporation into the umbrella agreement. This structure acknowledges the value of having a long-term vision to govern our partnership and guide the repeatable creation of these site agreements going forward. We are excited to share that this umbrella agreement was approved at the Board of Education last month, um, and if this commission approves the agreement today, it will then go on to the Board of Supervisors for approval to have authority to enter into those site agreements, which are in excess of 10 years. And I would like to end just by echoing Joel's thank you um, and acknowledgement to our internal teammates at the Infrastructure Division who worked alongside us on this agreement and our amazing partners at the school district who came to the table with a truly collaborative vision for our partnership on green infrastructure. Thank you. Great. Thank you much. Um, I want to start out by saying, you know, th thanks for this summary presentation and all the documents that are accompanying it. I know that we as commissioners over the years have been seeing you know, some of these projects, you know, whether or not they're a small, you know, the re, re, um, re, removing of, you know, pipes at a particular fountain to see what's going to, you know, what can be taken care of, you know, yeah. from the small ones to the larger ones. So um, I think this is uh, important, and I know that we'll be seeing these peppered through, you know, the, the regular uh, meetings that we have as these projects come to fruition to be, um, you know, enveloped into the... Uh, into, into the master agreement. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, Commissioner Ajami. Um, thank you for that presentation. I actually was wondering, uh, can we as part of this, I mean, I brought, I brought this up multiple times. I think it's great to build green infrastructure. It's just like the fact that you have the data and you know how they're operating is totally a different element of this. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there is a way we can use sort of um, some we can incorporate some form of a data gathering first uh, because we need to know how they're operating and if they're really doing what we are we are hoping them to do second because this can be an educational experience for the kids beyond just building green infrastructure uh, how do you put instruments together how do you track uh, their operation how often you need to revisit what you build right it, it is a amazing educational tool and they can also we can also I mean depending on which schools we are looking into maybe in the high school level they can even uh, write models that they can see how these operations have uh, started and ended or uh, you know disrupted by this and that I think yeah. uh, 
it would be important to put this in here. I would like for us to be better at gathering information and data on our uh, green infrastructure, and I would like to see that incorporated in this effort. Yeah, we can certainly get back to you on how to do that, whether, you know, what will go in the site agreements. We have some flexibility there if we want to outline kind of our stewardship um, and engagement with students on a project-by-project -project basis. And then we could come back about, you know, how we're going to kind of bring that together through all the different sites that we work at. And then potentially you guys can own some of that data or see some of that data, and then we yeah. internally can use it to see... Which, which location works, which location doesn't work, how often they need to operate it here, yep. what's the challenge there, you know, so just kind of like be able for us to also have that data. Yeah, absolutely. Commissioner Stacy. Uh, thank you, and thank you for the presentation. I just want to endorse what Commissioner Ajami just said. There was an early greening program at my kids' middle school, public middle school in San Francisco, and just the planning process and the way the students got involved in the planning process with the teachers and the staff um, was a really useful um, educational tool. I also just wanted to endorse again that <clears throat> you've heard it from the Commission a lot. Green infrastructure is a really important part of our wastewater program and it's good to see that you are um, pursuing it. When I first read the agenda item I thought wow it's really ambitious 40 years uh, with the school district. Um, but it, as I read through the agreement and the staff description, it's really a good framework for moving forward and that things, uh, programs, agreements, um, projects may evolve over that 40-year period and this MOU really seems to allow that. <clears throat> I also noted that there were um, fairly easy termination provisions so that if circumstances change so radically that it's not working out for either the school district or the city that um, they can terminate the MOU, but it seems like a really useful framework for a long period of time moving forward, so I just wanted to endorse that as well. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Commissioners? Again, thank you for that, a 40-year uh, partnership uh, that with many details forthcoming, so thank you very much. Thank you. Um, let us open this to public comment. How many members of the public present to provide comment on item number seven? Please uh, come to the microphone. Denise Louie, active member of the California Native Plant Society. Gee, where to begin? You know, California is a biodiversity hotspot, meaning we're blessed with an abundance of species, many of which we have brought to the brink of extinction. And it's not just Bay Delta fish, it's plants as well. San Francisco is an important part of that, this biodiversity hotspot. In fact, of the 780 plant, uh, plants in San Francisco's historical record, one third have disappeared. We should be seeing more of the 516 that remain. So I'd like to, to see and hear uh, your documents and speakers include the fact that we need to create and, or recreate and protect native habitats with plants, starting with plants of San Francisco genetics. So just for example, I need you to know that plants from my backyard with San, seeds from, with San Francisco genetics 
were used in the habitat restoration around Laguna Honda Reservoir and the recent PUC uh, um, effort to restore habitat, native habitat around Laguna Honda where PUC had removed dead and dying trees. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And this is, um, this is public comment on item seven with the M MOU with the school district. Please come to the microphone if you would like to speak. Thank you, we're gonna come up together. <laughs> Hi, I'm Katie Poyle, I'm the Executive Director of Facility Services for the San Francisco Unified School District. And my name is Kate Levitt, I'm the Communications Director for the Bond Program at SFUSD. Um, and we are here to endorse this agreement, obviously. Um, I've been working very closely with Sarah over the last few years, um, putting this agreement together, and I am absolutely thrilled to be standing in front of you today, actually seeing it, uh, move through. We've been working really closely, like many of you mentioned, on smaller scale projects. Um, this is an opportunity to provide really transformational opportunities for students, um, not just for learning, but for playing. Um, we also have worked into the agreement opportunities for our staff um, to learn and grow professionally. So I think it's a great job opportunity for local San Francisco residents. And I'll just add my role is uh, managing all the community outreach and engagement and we're just thrilled about the opportunity that this brings to create more dynamic, vibrant schoolyards and to work with students and staff. So thank you to the, uh, the staff that we've worked with. Thank you, commissioners. Um, we really appreciate this, this MOU. Thank you. Great. Thanks for being part of the team. Um, public comment on item seven. Are there any more speakers? Seeing none. Um, so let's move forward. Is there a motion and second to approve this uh, MOU? Move to approve. Second. Um, can we have a roll call, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jeremy? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have four ayes. Are approved for the new partnership officially. Okay, um, the next items are items eight, nine, 10 and 11, and I want to remind everybody that um, th these are the, um, the final readings of what we did for four long meetings, um, four special meetings that we had um, just, just in the last couple weeks, um, going through all the different enterprises and going through the entire budget process. So um, we are going to be presenting these individually, um, and, um, We'll, and Donna, you'll read them in a second, and then we will be voting on each of these items uh, separately as we, as we move forward. So, Donna, can you read the items together, please? Thank you, yes. Starting with item eight. Item eight, public hearing to consider impossible action to adopt the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission's biennial operating budget, including the revenue transfer for capital. Item nine, public hearing to consider impossible action to adopt the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission's two-year capital budget and authorize a general manager to seek Board of Supervisors approval for the issuance of water revenue bonds and other forms of indebtedness, including commercial paper and state revolving fund loans, wastewater revenue bonds and other forms, forms of indebtedness, including commercial paper and state revolving fund loans, and power revenue bonds and other forms of indebtedness, including commercial paper loans, all subject to the terms and conditions of charter sections 9.1076 and 
Item 10, public hearing to consider impossible action to adopt the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission's 10-year capital plan. And item 11, public hearing to consider impossible action to adopt the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission 10-year financial plan. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Before um, I hand things over, um, commissioners, I want to thank you for your engagement in the four budget hearings that took place over uh, the last several weeks. We're so pleased to receive your feedback and answer your questions. We're, we're before you today for formal adoption of the budget capital plan and our financial plan. As you know, climate change is the challenge of our era. As such, it was a key lens that we used to help shape this budget. Climate change affects so many aspects of our work from protecting the environment to meeting regulatory requirements to clean energy needs. More intense storms and droughts are the new reality we face. To help address that, we're making major investments, which will be detailed a little later in the presentation. I also just wanted to briefly touch on our earlier dis uh, discussion around the clean, affordable, and reliable power that we provide and the benefits that we offer as a public utility compared to a profit-driven utility like PG&E. We have a data-driven plan for a citywide public education campaign about our power services that is scheduled to launch later this year and is already included in the budget. We'll go into that in a little bit more detail later on in the presentation as well. With that, I'll hand things off to Nancy Hamm, our Chief Financial Officer, Laura Bush, our Deputy Chief Financial Officer, and Aaron Corvinova, our Financial Planning Director. They'll present an overview of the four items before you today for approval. Over to Nancy. Thank you, Dennis. Good afternoon, President Paulson and Commissioners. My name is Nancy Hamm, Chief Financial Officer, AGM of Business Services. Um, later on, Laura Bush and Aaron Coronova will present the remaining items for items 9, 10, and 11. So this budget and capital and financial plans are the product of many hours of hard work by our agency staff over the past six months. We want to express our gratitude for their time and commitment to this process. I'd also like to thank members of the public for their engagement in this process as we appreciate their inputs and insights to our budget and our financial and capital plans. So we're here today to adopt items eight through 11 on the agenda, our bank, which are, is our biannual operating and capital budget, our 10-year capital plan, and 10-year financial plan. This is our agenda today. We'll begin with the recap of our budget hearings and commission actions and then revisit our budget priorities. We'll continue with the operating budget summary, capital budget and 10-year capital improvement plan summary, and then the 10-year financial plan overview. Before we get to the items here before you for adoption today, I'd like to provide a quick recap of what we've accomplished thus far for our 2024 budget hearings. This commission has held four special hearings over the past two weeks to allow executive and senior management to deliver their budget overviews and answer any questions that you may have had. We're now here on February 13th for the adoption of these items listed here. We've had nearly 12 hours of public hearings over these past four meetings prior to today's budget hearing. Presentations covered our budget priorities and budget change drivers for each SFPUC enterprise and bureau budget. We've ensured to take note of this commission's questions and followed up timely with timely with answers before the onset of the next each, uh, next each special budget hearing. And importantly, we provided the opportunity for the public to provide feedback and input, meeting our obligations under the SF Administrative Code, Section 3.3. 3. Sorry. 
commissioners, you play a vital role in our budget development process. Your role of providing important input and feedback is critical. It is a big step as part of our agency's proposed budget is presented to this public forum. Transparency has been our primary goal in proposing this year's budget. At today's meeting, again, these items are being presented for your consideration. The budget will then be submitted to the controller's office and subsequently proposed to the mayor's office, who in turn will propose uh, the, the budget in May. During these two next phases, our budget may go through modifications with final approval in June and going into effect on July 1st. At that time, we'll return to this commission and provide you a final summary of the final budget detailing any changes that may have occurred after the adoption of the proposed budget at today's meeting. These changes could include things such as labor agreements, fringe benefit costs, and budget cuts by the Board of Supervisors, budget, and legislative analysts. You've seen these budget priorities throughout our special budget hearings and highlighted in each enterprise and bureau's presentation. We've developed our proposed budgets to align and contribute to our agency's endeavor to becoming a utility of the future. Again, these priorities are emphasized here as affordability, responsible management, and ensuring we invest where, that matter, where it matters. Each budget priority is further supported by initiatives and actions that further guide us in our budget development process. Over the past couple of weeks, we've heard your concerns and feel it is important to respond to them. To be clear, this capital budget and the entirety of our agency's operations are viewed through a climate change lens. We are not only planning for the future impacts of climate change, rather we know that climate change is here and already impacting our systems, region, and our ratepayers. And to be responsive, we felt compelled to specifically call out key areas that we prioritize in our capital project budgets. I want to emphasize these examples and that they are also not an exhaustive list. We can be inclined to say that all of our capital projects in the next iteration of the 10-year plan is either a result of climate change or that we seek to ready our system and ratepayers for the oncoming, oncoming worsening impacts of climate change. And though that statement does sound exaggerated, please allow me to share why it's not. Our agency's response to regulatory, environmental, and clean energy needs is clearly, clearly climate-driven. However, budgeting for the repair and replacement of aging infrastructure does not appear as clean cut. So in viewing this budget through a climate lens, enterprise staff considered it this way. Increasing dramatic storm events placed increased pressure on our wastewater infrastructure. Increasing hot weather events also negatively pressure our power infrastructure and create domino effects to our power supply and distribution costs. The uncertainty of the frequency and severity of drought events also leads to water infrastructure and systems being stressed. And these are a few key examples. And they illustrate and provide to you an example of how climate change is further aging our already old systems where many components are already beyond their expected use life. We know that the examples of aging infrastructure points to a broad brush in nearly saying all of our proposed $11.8 billion capital plan is a result of climate change. But to be more specific, the following highlights are some key projects that are inarguably the strategic actions in response to the direct result of climate change on our agency. And we've quantified some of these projects with the total budget amounts on this slide. The first being system resiliency in water and wastewater. Climate change will increasingly age systems as weather events become more extreme. Storms will create more damage affecting our systems. And temperatures will also continue to rise 
and the intensity and frequency of droughts will increase. We have climate resiliency projects totaling 789 million in this capital plan. These include the ocean beach climate adaptation projects, green infrastructure, and the Folsom Area Stormwater Improvement Projects. These help our agencies and the communi communities around them to respond to the impacts of flooding and heat islands as a result of climate change. We're also being responsible stewards of a healthy bay. Our largest project in this iteration, the 10-year capital plan, is the Southeast Outfall Nutrients Reduction Project, which ensures that we do our part to contribute to the reduction of regional the regional um, issue of nutrients in the Bay, and that project totals $1.2 billion. Clean energy expansion, a total of $780 million. These projects include the Moccasin Penstocks, carbon-free steam, the San Francisco International Airport's substation improvements, and the downtown electrification of, for the ferry. These all ensure that our agency is a utility of the future and takes our commitment and responsibilities seriously to reduce carbon emissions, which only threaten to worsen the impacts of climate change. And while this slide does focus on capital investments, we know that operationally all of our work is impacted by climate change, and we will be evaluating these impacts as we continue to observe how, we, um, how our operational needs may need to change. And we hope that by highlighting this climate change lens that we are already using to evaluate our proposed investments is helpful. It was important to take this time to highlight how seriously we do consider the ongoing threat that climate change poses to our infrastructure systems and ratepayers. I also want to share how we continue to publicly promote our power services, highlighting the value we provide to our Hedge Hedge Power and Clean Power SF customers. Our electricity services today remain cheaper than PG&E. Hetchy Power continues to offer the lowest electricity rates in San Francisco, and Clean Power SF continues to offer savings compared to PG&E, specifically for generation. The average at residential Clean Power SF customer will save approximately $8 a month getting their electricity service from Clean Power SF instead of PG&E. And we're actively communicating these important highlights across our, across our channels, especially since PG&E continues to make headlines for becoming the most expensive power provider in California, with increased electricity rates as recent as January 1st. We've seized that as an opportunity to highlight the savings from, our, from the use of our electricity uh, utility services offered to San Francisco residents and businesses, which has resulted in positive local media coverage, um, as highlighted in the section from the SF standard on this slide. We also actively engage in social media campaigns to highlight the benefits of our utility services, and you can see examples here from some of our posts. We also message our customers through e-newsletters, which reach about 240,000 recipients. Other tools that we leverage include direct mail marketing and in-person outreach events, as well as free educational webinars that provide service information directly to our customers. On January 25th, 90 people, over 90 people attended our most recent webinar entitled Understanding Your Electricity Bill. It helped demystify PG&E, Clean Power SF, and Hedgy Power Bills, explaining the differences and sharing helpful tips for managing customers' power bills throughout the year. As you can see, we do have a great story to tell about our electricity utility services offered by Hedgy Power and Clean Power SF. And to amplify our story and expand its reach, Funding has been allocated for a broader paid advertising and marketing campaign for later this year. And to ensure the success of that campaign, SFPC Communications will conduct a public opinion research um, 
project of our power customers in the first quarter of this calendar year to gauge their interests and motivations when it comes to electricity service. This data will help us inform our approach to the citywide education campaign, which is set to launch around the start of the new fiscal year, around July. We're happy to keep this commission informed of this effort as it moves towards forwards in the months ahead. So now continuing with item number eight, the adoption of our biannual operating budgets for fiscal year 24-25 and 2025-26. And as I move through this section, you'll likely recall many of these slides from our special hearings. I'll try to go through them quickly, but I will also welcome any questions you may have at the end of the presentation. I also want to caveat again that the budget numbers represent our best estimates and that they may change during the mayor and board phases specific to labor cost assumptions and any other uh, changes that they propose at that time. And again, we'll come back to you in the early summer to summarize all the changes between now and then. This pie chart represents our proposed $2 billion operating budget for next fiscal year 2024-25. The growth in our operating budget is driven by two main cost drivers accounting for over 60% of our operating budget. These are capital, capital costs representing 36% and are comprised of both debt service and revenue funded capital represented in the dark blue and light blue shades. That totals $228 million in year one. Second is power purchase and distribution costs, representing 26% of the operating budget highlighted there in the orange or yellow on the screen. Other costs include personnel costs and non-personal costs that support daily operations. So how much has our budget grown from current year? This bar chart highlights that it will go, grow 18% or 323 million dollars over the next two fiscal years. And again, the primary drivers here are capital and power purchases, being the most significant and largest costs, growing by a total of 306 million, or 83% of that 323 million. And you'll see these in blue and orange on the bar chart. New proposals for our operating budget are not a significant driver of overall growth. Our new requests total $33 million and are about 10% of that overall growth figure. In other words, new proposals increase the operating budget by just 1.8% over two years. The operating budget growth drivers are laid out here in a bar chart for easier viewing. It's clear, again, that capital costs in gray and blue, as well as increasing power and purchase and distribution costs in orange, are the main drivers in our operating budget growth. And though we were able to strategically develop our capital plan proposals, it's important to know that we do not have full control over these power purchase and distribution costs in our operating budget, as they're driven by energy market prices and PG&E. The fact, this fact places a lot of pressure on the power enterprise. Erin Corvanova, financial planning director, will later share more on, the, on this in her portion of the presentation. And a quick reminder regarding that green bar at the bottom. It is a reduction in our general reserve contribution as compared with the current year's budget. This is in accordance with our financial plan. Our new proposals are summarized here. You might be familiar with this slide. New operating proposals totaled $47.3 million by fiscal 2025 and 26. However, we've been able to offset a portion of these costs by right-sizing our budgeted salary savings. The net impact of new proposals to the operating budget is a, total, is a net total of $33 million when factoring these salary savings. 
The blue table to the left breaks out the new proposals by enterprise and factors salary savings again, and you'll see that at the bottom line. <clears throat> Infrastructure's budget is listed separately, and although their budget does grow, their funding comes from the capital budget. This slide is a summary of our overall staffing requests. A portion of new proposals is due to changes we've made to our staffing, detailed on the pie chart and also in the table to the right. We're requesting a total of 171 new permanent positions. That's the total between those, the 84 and the 87 circled in the blue, and then 175 substitutions. And as you may recall, of the 171 new positions, 87 are conversions of existing temporary staff to permanent positions. The pie chart to the left details the position request by Enterprise and Bureau. So again, let's quickly go through what these staff changes are. The 175 substitutions are both to repurpose vacant positions for changing operational needs and aligning job duties with classifications. They are existing budgeted positions where we are requesting to change the job classification and the role. The next group of 171 new positions requested of this figure, in addition to the actual new positions, these include 87 temporary to permanent conversions to ensure that permanent operating positions are filled with permanent civil service staff to support retention and recruitment. Of the 174, 71, excuse me, the remaining 84 are new positions to address urgencies and issues such as staffing shortages in key operational areas such as water quality, natural resources, and green infrastructure maintenance, and more importantly, shoring up our human resources team to ensure proper capacity to increase hiring performance. So I wanna take a little bit of time for the benefit of the commission and those here today to share more about what temporary to permanent conversions mean and why they are a priority in our budget. Again, this is 87 of the 171 new positions. And these requests are budget and headcount neutral, as they are temporary exempt positions that are to be converted to permanent civil service staff that are in core long-term operational roles. These positions are for existing staff that we already have on board or soon will and are already paying for this fiscal year. They sit in temporary position requisitions paid by our temporary salaries budgets. Staff that perform core operational duties should be in permanent operating positions. And as we've experienced, temporary staff are more likely to leave employment with the SFPUC. Turnover is a significant challenge for our agency and is a cost to ratepayers as it creates disruption in our business operations, increases labor costs, and has a negative effect on our workforce. So retention of staff is a core priority for our agency. In, a recent, in our recent employee voice survey, not having a permanent civil service position was among the top two reasons why temporary employees would consider leaving SFPUC. Being in a temporary position is more likely to make an employee consider leaving more so than inadequate play, a lack of meaningful work, or even a poor relationship with supervisors and coworkers. And more importantly, Lack of career advancement opportunities is the main reasons employees consider leaving us. Having permanent roles and positions that employees can advance into is thus a key recruitment and retention strategy, and this is proven in our data and through individual experience by our hiring managers. We've lost many talented in individuals, um, employees to offers from internal and external 
jobs for permanent positions and roles. And as these per temporary positions are currently filled at the time of this budget proposal, there is no new headcount for these substitutions. Labor costs for these conversions are offset with reductions in our temporary salaries budget and attrition increases as we are already paying for them with existing budgeted dollars. And again, we won't shy away from the fact that we have a large number of existing vacancies. You may ask, how can we ask for so many new positions when we already have hundreds of positions that we can't fill? Well, we can answer that. Management has thought through this very carefully and we've acknowledged, we acknowledge the reality that we need to fill these vacancies and we need the new staff. Finance took further steps to ensure we were being extremely prudent and responsible. We first went through the vacancy report in detail with each enterprise and bureau to identify positions that were no longer needed or were vacant for too long. And we repurposed these positions for substitutions for new roles and needs. And as a result, we, received, we, we got 175 substitutions in this budget. This significantly reduced the number of new requests from the original 203 to 171 new positions we detailed previously. Next, and most importantly, we have a story for every vacancy to ensure that no FTE sits vacant without an active recruitment plan. Every vacancy we have is justified and we have documented recruitment actions and plans. We've already provided this information in advance, in advance to the mayor's office and the board of supervisors, budget and legislative analysts in response to their citywide inquiry on vacancies. Additionally, we have significant changes in the budget, in budget attrition to more appropriately reflect salary savings thereby offsetting both the budget dollars and new FTE requests. And again, um, most importantly, we are committed to filling our vacancies and we, we do that by ensuring that we bolster our human resources services team to support hiring activities for successful recruitments and that hopefully we will increase that in the upcoming fiscal year. This slide highlights PUC's FTE growth over the last four fiscal years. Our annual appropriation ordinance, or known as the AAO FTE position number, is highlighted for each fiscal year on the bar chart and also on the table. The authorized AAO figure represents budgeted and funded FTEs and excludes off-budget positions and attrition. And as you can see, our FTE has only grown by 4.3%, or 73 positions in the last seven years. Meanwhile, our operating budget over the same period of time, or for four years, has grown by nearly 50%. And again, a larger operating budget isn't a matter of extra zeros on payments or reports. I can definitely attest to you on that. We all know how much more complex the work of our agency has gotten over the last few years. This has been due to responding to and remaining in compliance of new regulations, increased audits and transparency, massive capital investments, strengthening and supporting our workforce, and engaging and investing into our communities. The PUC must stay ahead with training to maintain more complex skill sets in the workplace and keep up with the increased pace and volume of business operations due to the advances in technology that fuel our growth. Again, the point I'm highlighting here is that our staffing request is reasonable and appropriate given the scope of our work has changed and grown significantly. We will remain fiscally prudent and leverage what resources we already have and only request what we need to successfully accomplish our organizational objectives. Thank you, and with that, I'd like to hand over the presentations for items nine and 10 to Laura Bush, Deputy Chief Financial Officer for Financial Strategy. Thank you. Um, are we done with eight and we're going to nine? 
is that how we are on the agenda? I want to take, if there's uh, commissioner questions, I want to make sure we have an appropriate break. I'd like to do it at the end, but I think we, if we could do it since Nancy is finished. Commissioner Ajami. Ms. Holmes, thank you so much for your presentation. I actually realized I um, had a question last time which I forgot to ask, and this might be something that actually uh, General Manager Herrera can clarify for me. Um, I see there are four new positions under the General Manager um, uh, role, and I was just wondering what is the allocation of these four new roles? Most, if not all of them, are, are for our um, DEI efforts. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, because now we have Chris Bijou on board. These were new positions. He's housed in the office of the general manager. Okay. And these are staffers that uh, he needs for his efforts. And I assume that other role you were thinking about, the and innovation, the innovation that role those are would the be there. And the okay. records manager. Okay, thank you. Yep. Okay. Mr. Stacy. Uh, thank you for all of the information throughout all of the hearings and all the questions you've answered. I also had a question that I should have asked earlier. <clears throat> on your slides 12 and 13 on item 8, you show on slide 12 an offsetting increase in salary savings, and then on slide 13 you show a salary savings. Are those savings uh, caused by the vacant positions? Is that okay. how we save? On salaries that's absolutely right um, there's actually two drivers and you really hit on a po an important point the changes in attrition or salary savings in the budget is a major strategy of the SFPUC to be prudent and responsible this year so we've done two things we have right-sized our salary savings in our budget to account for historic vacancies and salary savings that we see every time we look at the budget versus actuals report secondly we are doing a lot of temporary to permanent conversions in our budget. Those are staff that we already have on board and we're paying for already, so we don't need to ask for new dollars or new FTE for those folks. So we're also offsetting those positions through attrition savings, and that's what <clears throat> adds up to the 14 million you're seeing. So I think you've anticipated my follow-up question. The salary savings, if they're vacant positions, they will hopefully decrease that as you fill those vacant positions. But I think what you've just said is we're already anticipating that we're going to fill those vacant positions. And so this number is based on a more traditional rate of attrition and rate of vacancy. That's that right. right. So okay. actually through this budget, Good. our um, current attrition rate is just under 11%. We're going to be increasing our attrition rate to just over 12% through this budget. Um, to more appropriately reflect the salary savings we've historically been seeing. Okay. And yes, um, ideally we would get all of those positions filled, but experience goes to show that we won't. There's always going to be turnover, no matter how hard we work to fill the positions. So it's prudent and responsible not to charge the ratepayers for the full amount of every position if we know there's going to be vacancies. Understood. Thank you very much. And I'll use this opportunity to squeeze in something I was going to um, hold till the end um, before Laura you j dive in uh, I, I just want to thank you for um, just re-emphasizing you know the different ideas of moving from uh, temporary to permanent and and going into the details that we went into much more in the, in the earlier budget meetings but actually emphasizing that and talking about how it's a core job um, you know the ideas that drive this are they, these are core jobs it's better for morale it helps with retention and they are real jobs and I know that that's been 
you know, not just during this cycle, but for a long time in, in many departments, not just the PUC, the idea is, is that you know, we don't want temporary people. People do want to make careers and have real jobs here. And the emphasis that you are making on this is, is duly noted, and I, I'm just going to put that in right now instead of saving it for later. So thank you for that. So um, Laura, I think you're about ready to um, dive into the next part of this summary, um, item nine, et, et cetera. Welcome again. Um, good afternoon, Commissioners. Um, Laura Bush, Deputy CFO. I'm going to be presenting on items 9 and 10 today, the capital-related items. So I'm going to provide an overview of the two-year capital budget, capital financing authorization, and the 10-year capital plans. As you know, we went through these items in great detail during our four budget hearings in January. Um, so this is just going to be a reminder, and you'll recognize some of the slides. I'm going to be repeating them. <coughs> Okay, so as we look back at the budget presentations over the past two weeks, it's clear there's been a lot of growth in PUC's capital plans across our enterprises. This slide illustrates the historic investments by enterprise that will be made over the next 10 years. Overall, this year's 10-year CIP is growing by 34%, or $3 billion. The shape of this, CIP, this year's CIP is different than in past years as well. Instead of high spending in the first few years and leveling off in the out years, here we see higher spending in the out years as well. This actually explains a lot of the growth. What you see here is a major new project entering the plan, the approximately $1.5 billion nutrients project in wastewater, which will begin ramping up in the second half of the plan and will continue beyond the 10 years. <clears throat> as we've previously noted, this year's capital plan has grown tremendously. Climate change is a key lens that we use in developing our capital plans. And nearly three quarters of the growth is related to regulatory, environmental, and clean energy projects, which can all be linked to climate change. The pie chart here is an example of the relatively few subject areas that are driving the growth in our capital plan, which we've covered in detail in our hearings. Stepping back to look at the 10 years as a whole, the 10-year uh, capital plan will total $11.8 billion. Roughly half of that funding in this plan is made up of wastewater projects, followed by water, Hetchy Water, Hetchy Power, and Clean Power SF, respectively, as shown in the pie chart. Let's now zoom into the two-year capital budget, which is simply the first two years of our capital plan. It's important to note that the large changes to the 10-year plan did not have a significant impact on the two-year budget, which is the money that we're actually appropriating as part of this budget process. Both years of this budget are just under $1.6 billion. As shown in, in the slide in the chart, the two-year budget we're proposing is actually really similar to what we thought it would be in the last iteration of the 10-year CIP. In addition to these numbers here, um, uh, which relate to the project budgets only, will also be financing costs of around $230 million per year, which are going to be added on top. And I'll discuss that in the next slide. So we talked about debt a lot in my last presentation. In, con in conjunction with the two-year capital budget you're authorizing today, debt authorizations are needed so we can issue the debt necessary to support these expenditures. The totals here in the slide include the funding for the capital projects, which is about $2.6 billion that we're funding via debt, and associated bond financing costs of about $450 million. These include issuance costs, capitalized interest, uh, racing agency, and disclosure costs. This is a total of about $3 billion in bond authorization that we're asking for. 
So just to close out this very brief uh, overview and recap of, our, of the information presented in our hearings, um, I just wanted to leave you with the uh, high-level takeaways about this year's capital improvement plan. This plan is the largest ever proposed in terms of dollars that will allow the PUC to continue to provide clean and reliable drinking water, protect public health and the environment, and provide affordable clean energy. This plan was developed balancing our ability to deliver these projects with our affordability and need to transparently respond to external cost pressures. This plan was developed with a climate lens. It ensures that San Francisco adheres to our values by seriously investing in projects that will make a meaningful uh, difference towards fighting the climate crisis and becoming more resilient to it. This plan is a catalyst for sustained economic growth, creating tens of thousands of good-paying jobs over the next 10 years. This plan supports small business and business development broadly in the city, in turn supporting the city's general fund through taxes. The development of this plan was the PUC's most rigorous to date, given our focus on the capital planning and improvement initiative. And finally, this plan is in full alignment with the mayor's budget priorities. Projects in this plan will ensure San Francisco is safer, cleaner, more prosperous, and more importantly, more resilient. Thank you, and now I will turn over to, well, I guess I'll take questions now before I turn over to the final item. You will, so <laughs> since, you, since you offered, we are going to gladly oblige, so Commissioner Jami. Thank you so much. Uh, so um, I have actually a question, um, maybe it's sort of connected to this, but also connected to what you presented earlier. We obviously have a portion of our capital cost, which is um, revenue-funded uh, ca uh, capital um, investment. And obviously, like we had this conversation last time too, and I assume Skornorowa um, is going to touch on this a little bit, is that what happens if we you know, oversize these things, then revenue doesn't come in, then we, do we then acquire more debt to be able to pay for that? Like, there is a little bit of a dynamic in there that we have to think about. And I'm wondering, are we thinking about that? Are, they, are there any thoughts, strategies put in place to figure out, uh, you know, how we are going to manage this? And, you know, I do hope that we'll get, I'm assuming your presentation might cover some of this whole discussion around um, the revenue uncertainty um, that we may deal with and, and the reality that somebody has to pay for these things. So is it low-income community that ends up being more, most more impacted by this? Who's going to be like on the hook uh, in different proportions, right, to be able to cover the cost that you're acquiring? So long question. Just happy to hear your perspective on that. Why don't I start and then Erin can jump in if she needs to add anything. What you're asking is the stuff that keeps me up at night. We think about this the whole time we're preparing our capital plans and our budget, and it's really the focus of our 10-year financial plan. So what I would say is we're going into all of this investment with our eyes wide open about what it means financially for the PUC. That is exactly why we do our 10-year financial plans. It's a long-term outlook that we're required to do that goes along with our 10-year capital plans to ensure that the plans we're making to spend this money is sustainable for PUC and affordable to our customers. And that's actually a new step that we're taking this year. This commission recently adopted an affordability policy. Um, so that is now part of our financial planning efforts to ensure that the rate increases that we will need to sustain this debt that we're taking on are affordable to our customers. Um, so I guess my answer to this question is we've run the sensitivity analysis analyses 
We've looked at the risks, and that's why we have our financial plan in place. There is a balance of all of the financial information we take in to ensure that uh, PC is financially, financially sustainable in the future and has the revenue to cover the debt service that we're taking on. I appreciate that. I mean, it keeps me up at night too, so maybe you and I should talk sometimes in the middle. <laughs> um, exactly. Um, but joking aside, it is, a, it is a big issue. And obviously, we just, I mean, it's, it's not just the affordability piece. It's also making sure we have a financially sustainable utility that doesn't end up deferring maintenance to make sure we can have affordable rates. And I'm not saying that's what we are doing or we will do, but I just, you know, if we have a good strategy in place, we can avoid those kind of things. Um, the second thing I wanted to say, again, sort of touches on these both things. I appreciated the efforts around climate change and trying to kind of uh, bucket these efforts on under like the banner of climate change and see how, where we are investing our money. I would say maybe I would throw a bunch of other things underneath that too, <laughs> uh, partly because this discussion you and I are having about affordability and cost and revenue is very much linked to uh, the impacts of climate change very, and many other things that you're experiencing. Um, however, you know, there is an opportunity there for us to uh, cross collaborate around enterprises. And I know each enterprise has its own revenue stream and its own budget and its own sort of bucket. But I really want to see how we as a commission, or at least I'm putting myself out there saying, I would like to see for us to figure out, are there cross-benefit cross, you know, multi projects that two enterprises can go into business together and invest in? For example, yes, green infrastructure is great for you know, managing stormwater and capturing um, some of the you know the tip of the storm, but it also can recharge our groundwater, right? Now, obviously, we need to have enough of it to be able to capture what's going on. We need to see how much water is going underground. All of that is important. That's why data very much matters. But it can be a water and a, you know wastewater uh, solution. Um, so as a lot of other things we are doing in the city, and I'm trying to figure out. What are the different ways we can sort of create that flexibility for, um, for, to allow these kind of cross-collaborations happen, not just, um, not just by saying, yes, we agree with that project, but by actually going into business together. Um, so that's my other comment and overall um, observation, and I'm happy to hear if you have any thoughts on that too. Thank you. Commissioner Stacy. Thank you, and um, I have a few comments and questions on the 10-year capital plan. Uh, I appreciate what an incredibly complicated and thorough process this has been. Um, we've gotten some really valuable comments from members of the public, really looking carefully at what the 10-year capital plan is and how it bumps up against our affordability metric and you've heard from this commission, uh, you just talked about it with Commissioner Ajami, how focused uh, you as staff and we as a commission are on that financial planning and maintaining that affordability. And it does seem like there is a constant upward pressure. Um, we have 
some projects that we don't have um, data for yet, but we know are in our future, the alternative water supply uh, projects that as they get developed are surely going to add to the costs. And I think that the balance that we have here with a 10-year capital plan, things are going to change. And so I really appreciate the process of reevaluating that capital plan. We don't just act once, wait 10 years, and act again. It's a constant evolution with staff, with the public, and, and with the commission. And that is just going to be an ongoing struggle and an ongoing balance that we have. And um, this budget process, with all of the extra hearings and all of the good public comment we've gotten, I think really presses us to think really hard about those issues. I had a couple comments on Appendix B. Um, I think there's some updating needed in Appendix B, particularly on page 18. I, I know I've already asked um, staff about this. Both the alternative water supply right up on that page I think needs to be updated. It needs to include recycled water um, on the list of projects. I also think on that page <clears throat> there's a paragraph on climate resiliency projects. I think either that title needs to be narrowed or the description needs to be broadened well beyond just green infrastructure because you've highlighted throughout this process and in the capital plan of how much of our planning is about climate resiliency. And I think that we need to reflect that everywhere, in, including in our Appendix B. So I, I would just, um, I know we're not adopting that Appendix B, but it is an important document. And I just wanted to update those two paragraphs in particular. Yeah. We're happy to take another look at that. And I just wanted to highlight too, this is only the second year we've produced this report and it's an attempt to make information about our capital plan more accessible and digestible. Um, you probably also saw the capital plan Excel sheets and yes. the hundreds of data sheets, yes. which we realize is a bit much to digest, especially for members of the public. So that this is our effort to, be, to communicate better about our capital plan, but comments are noted. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I also, I just want to confirm that I understand some of the increase in the water capital improvement plan uh, referred to it in one point as new high priority projects entering the 10-year capital plan. And then as I put some of the documents together, it looked like most of those projects were including replacement of aging infrastructure into the capital plan, that that's what those new high priority projects were. Is that, is that correct? It seemed like a very general component, and I'm sorry, I don't have the page, but it, it looked as though um, the growth in was, Yeah, the growth in water's capital plan, which includes the Hetchy water yeah, portion as well, yeah. um, is a mixture of increased costs on existing projects that we were already doing in the a previous iteration of the capital plan, as well as new projects entering the plan, um, such as the Moccasin Penstocks replacement project, um, is a big new one in Hetchy Water. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a combination. Yeah, there was just sort of a generic mm -hmm. title, and I I think that the pieces, putting the pieces together from a couple of other parts of the staff report, that you have added in replacing more of the aging infrastructure. 
always a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that's it. <clears throat> I, I have a procedural question, and that is uh, about public comment today. Are we having just one period of public comment for Public comment will be at the end of item 11 for all four items, as, I, as we announced ahead. I would like to request that we give the public at least three minutes then to testify just to allow um, one final uh, public comment period. I know we've had a lot of hearings, but I because there are four different matters, I'd like to request that we allow the public at least three minutes of public testimony, if that's so, acceptable. So for both clarity from you and from general counsel, um, we can initiate that, and is it, and we can do it just for this one particular um, public comment for these four f four items. And do we have to take action on that, or can we just, can I as chair just say we will do that? Does anybody have any objections to that? Hallelujah. I think okay, right. so we will for this, for items eight through 11, we will go from the two to the three minutes. And I think somebody um, had mentioned that, maybe Mr. Warner earlier. But that being said, okay, so. That's it, thank you. Okay, we'll be there, and um, I had a couple of comments, but I'm gonna wait until after uh, Aaron and item 11 are done. So thank you, Laura. Thank Any you. Any other questions from the commissioners before we um, go to item 11? I just, uh, if you yes. don't mind, Mr. President, I just, uh, uh, Commissioner Jami and uh, uh, Commissioner Stacy, you alluded to some of the adjustments that we've made in our presentation on, on, on climate change and the lens. I just want, um, obviously, <clears throat> we're, what we did today was to, an attempt to address some issues that were raised in earlier hearings, but please rest assured, this is the beginning of a process and is by no means exhaustive in how we are going to uh, present things going forward and, and analyze our operations and how they are impacted by climate change. This, so I just wanted to you to rest assured that that is, this is the beginning of a process, right? And in terms of how we um, present information and analyze our information. So I, that's my only comment to you. And the environmental lens. Yeah. Okay. Thank All right, thank you. Thank you, I'll, um, Bush. Just before I hand it over to Erin, I just really wanted to take the opportunity to thank everyone in the PUC again for their incredible work on this budget. This is just not just a finance project. This is a whole of PUC projects, and it's incredible to see everyone come together and work on this over the last year. Thank you. Erin. Thanks for acknowledging that. Thank you. So, hi, Commissioners. Erin Corvanova. I'm the Financial Planning Director, and I'm here to talk about the financial plans, item number 11. And if I could get the slides. Thank you. So, our financial plans are required by the Charter. We are required to do an update that goes out 10 years, but starting this year, we've really also extended that to a focus on 20 years to make sure we're getting a more full, complete picture of what these plans mean to our customers. Uh, this is where all the operating and capital budgets come together. It's where we determine what rate increases are needed to afford those budgets, and where it's, it's where we check compliance with all of our financial policies. The plans themselves are these huge, complicated Excel financial models, but we also produce a report that goes into exhaustive detail of all the assumptions and data sources that we use to develop those plans. Those are both attached to the uh, agenda item today, that report. 
this year we made significant improvements as part of the capital planning improvement initiative to our financial plans. In particular, we completely rebuilt from the ground up those Excel-based models. This was an enormous effort. My team spent months and months on this, also in partnership with our folks in the enterprises and in infrastructure. We had a particular focus on making sure we can bring in more complicated data and making sure that we're accurately modeling the way that capital project expenditures flow through and impact our rates, because we all know that's the big driver of our costs. This is really the first stage in what I envision as an ongoing multi-year effort to improve our financial planning. We know our agency is facing much more significant, more complicated, more interrelated issues around finances, and so we're really scaling up the tools and the processes and the staff that are needed in order to meet those challenges. I really wanna reiterate what Laura said and thank everybody who's been helping us throughout this process. We could not have got this far without their assistance. Moving on to the outcomes of this year's financial plan. This graph, which you've seen before, shows our forecasts for water and wastewater demands. I say wastewater because our wastewater build volumes are based on metered water usage. So the forecast of wastewater billable volumes looks a lot like that retail water line on the bottom. The top line is our wholesale water customers. And you're seeing in this graph both actual historic usage levels as well as what we're forecasting for the 10 years of the plan. There's a few things that I wanna call out that go into our forecast. First, we have the recovery from the drought for both retail and wholesale customers over the next three to four years. That does not bounce back immediately, and we've also incorporated an assumption that there will be some permanent shifts, reductions in usage, especially in our wholesale service area where we know customers have greater ability to reduce their demands. That's something we've seen in every drought up until now, and it's something we expect to see going forward. Finally, we saw, especially on the retail side, a big drop in usage during the COVID-19 pandemic. Right now, what we're assuming is that we've really hit a new normal. We're still below where we were pre-pandemic, and we don't think that demand is coming back. We've seen shifts, permanent shifts, we believe, in how customers use our system, both work from home, shifts in how our retail businesses and offices are functioning, and we're not expecting that to change. So starting this year, we're saying this is the new normal, and any changes will be more long-term. The pandemic is not, not an impact anymore. Um, Past these short-term impacts, we also have a lot of long-term factors that we bring in. We have long-term population and job growth. We have long-term conservation, such as water efficiency requirements that new buildings are gonna have more efficient fixtures. And then we have price elasticity, which models the fact that when rates go up, customers will try to conserve to save money. All of these things have plus and minus impact on our long-term forecasts. I do want to emphasize that our biggest financial risks are usually in the short term where we have locked in rates. So especially on the retail water and sewer side, we have already adopted the next two years of rates. If we see huge fluctuations in water sales in those two years, it's more challenging to respond to that because we don't have the ability, well, without further commission action, to go back and change what we've told customers we're going to do and we really try to avoid that. We know there's a lot of interest, both from you commissioners and from the public in the long-term financial risks. That's definitely something we're gonna to continue to work on. As I mentioned, we're building out a lot of big tools to face these challenges and continuing our research to make sure we can meet those, those issues head on. I do think that we have the ability to plan. These things usually don't happen overnight, barring things like pandemics. And we do have the uh, ability to build up our tools and figure out how we can handle these risks in the long run. We'll be sure to bring you back more information about that, especially if we start to tackle our next round of water and sewer rates after this two-year period when rates are adopted. 
Finally, before I move on, I do also want to emphasize that this is a projection for financial planning purposes. Our folks in the water enterprise also pro uh, develop projections for water supply planning purposes. Those are completely different models. They have completely different goals. For them, they're trying to hedge against insufficient water supply, which means they don't want to under-project. For us, we're trying to hedge against insufficient revenues to cover our expenses, which means we don't want to over-project. Those two lines on a graph will never be equal because they're attempting to uh, address separate risks. So I just really want to reiterate that point. This slide is a lot of very small numbers. We include it here because we want to show the detail. I will not go through every single number on this graph, but I will take the opportunity to orient you to what is shown here because you'll see it for every single enterprise. Starting at the top, we have our beginning available fund balance. That is cash that has not been appropriated for operating or capital budgets. It's truly the cash available for our spending. You then have our sources or revenues and the uses or expenses. Sources minus uses equals your net revenues. And then you add that to your beginning fund balance to get to the ending fund balance row. Down at the bottom of the plan, you see our key financial metrics. We're showing here the retail and wholesale projected rate increases. And again, I will reiterate that only the first two years of retail rate increases are adopted. Every other number shown here can and will change as we get closer to when the commission takes action on those rates. We're showing our fund balance as a percent of operating expenses. That's our reserves. Our policy requires that that be at least 25% for most of our enterprises. We have two different ways of measuring our debt service coverage. That's how much cash are you generating in order to pay off the bonds that you have issued. Uh, the first one, the current coverage, is required to be 1.1, and the second one, the indenture coverage, is required to be 1.35 per this commission's approved debt service coverage policy. And finally, we have down there at the bottom the revenue-funded percentage of capital. This is a uh, policy, our capital financing policy, that says what is the right balance of revenue funding versus debt funding for our capital plan overall. It requires at least a minimum of 15%, and I do want to reiterate here that revenue funding is perhaps a little misleading of a label. Even when we fund things with bonds, we still pay for those out of revenues, right? That's all at the end of the day, that's all we have is our customer revenues. Really what revenue funding represents here on that line under uses and the percentage is cash-funded pay-as-you-go capital. So we like to balance that, and that's a key lever we have to think about what can we afford to pay for in full now versus what do we need to issue debt to pay for over a longer time period, but with interest. And as you can see, Water Enterprise is meeting its, all of its financial policies for the full 10-year period. Turning now to wastewater, same slide. Uh, there's definitely a few more challenges here in wastewater, but instead of showing you on this slide, I have a few that I think are easier to read with more graphical presentations. This is really focusing on wastewater's capital spending, which as you have heard over and over, is one of the most significant challenges facing our agency. The graph on the left shows not just the 10 years that are part of our proposed CIP, but a full 20-year picture of wastewater projected capital appropriations. We wanted to model this because we know there's some really big projects, very expensive projects that start just at the tail end of our 10-year plan that is before you today. And we want to make sure we're capturing the impact of those on our rates. These are, like I said, very large projects, and they are primarily debt-funded. 
You can see that in the total expenses graph on the right where the green wedge, which is our annual debt service payments, goes up from 24% of our annual expenses to 58% in the next 10 years. In fact, over the 20-year period, we're modeling that wastewater alone, just wastewater, will issue $13 billion in bonds, all of which must be paid for by San Francisco ratepayers. We've made a few conservative assumptions as we look at this very large amount of debt issuance. First, we've increased in this plan the assumed interest rate that we're paying on those bonds for the first 10 years. We all know interest rates in the United States are very high right now. We used to assume 5%. We've increased that to 6%. In addition, and just to give you some context for what that means, just in the first 10 years, that extra 1% interest for wastewater is an additional $215 million in expenditures. So this really did have an impact on making this plan perhaps more realistic, but definitely more conservative. In addition, we actively pursue state and federal low-cost loans, such as the SRF and WIFIA program, as well as grants to fund our program. If we get those, those could have very low, very favorable interest rates, 1% or 2% we've gotten in the past. But we don't count on that. We assume that we're having to have to pay every single dollar of this plan solely out of our uh, own revenue bonds at those higher interest rates. So if we're able to sell bonds at lower interest or get those low-cost loans, we can hopefully bring this down. This slide shows what this means for wastewater's financial policies. The graph shows their ending available fund balance. The black dashed line represents the minimum of 25% of annual operating expenses, and you can see we're drawing down closer to that line throughout the 10 years. We're currently above that red line, which is sort of a maximum line. And the idea there in the policy is that if we're above that line, we should spend down that money to return money to rate payers and avoid bigger rate increases. That is, in fact, what we're doing. And in anticipation of knowing wastewater would have these big costs, we've been raising rates to build up fund balances. If we hadn't done that, the projected wastewater rate increases over the next 10 years would be even higher. So we're relying on that as a way to reduce customer burden. The bottom table shows uh, wastewater's debt service coverage, both the indenture and current. We are meeting our policy throughout the 10 years, but you can see those numbers do get lower over the 10-year as wastewater issues more bonds. That's definitely something we're going to keep a very close eye on, along with our capital financing team, to make sure we're managing this debt appropriately. Putting it all together, this is the water and sewer affordability, the average residential customer bill over the 20-year period. You can see that it grows by about 8.1% annually over the 10-year period, really driven by the wastewater portion. In 10 years, our average single-family customer will be paying about $308 per month, rising to $436 per month in the 20-year period. This estimate does come in barely under our affordability targets, and that's really because of all the work that our capital folks did to try and smooth projects out, move projects out, reduce projects, prioritize projects. What can we do to bring that down? If that hadn't happened, we would definitely be over the line. However, we're uncomfortably close. I don't think anybody thinks that this is an amazing, super great way to look. And so one of the big priorities that we're already beginning is to figure out how we can bring those costs down. You've heard that the wastewater nutrients project is in the medium term the big driver. So we're actively seeking external funding and working with regional partners to see what we can do. Our hope is that what's shown here because of the conservative assumptions we've made is really a worst case proposal and that we can bring these costs down. But we don't want to overpromise or minimize the challenges that we're facing. 
Turning now to power. Uh, we have a lot of different issues that face power than in water and wastewater. Really importantly, we are not a monopoly provider. We have to keep an eye on our competitors' rates because many customers do have the ability to leave our program, which means we lose their revenues. Our forecasts also have much greater uncertainty. Hetch Hetchy generation only happens during certain times of year, and it's reduced during drought. When we can't uh, generate our own power for Hetch Hetchy, we have to go out to power markets and buy supplies, which are impacted by market forces completely beyond our control. Moreover, all components of our power supply have seen huge costs and regulatory changes in recent years, and we think we'll continue to do so. Finally, power, both our generation, our customer usage, and our rates are all very seasonally different. That means that our financial models are monthly instead of annual to capture that detail. We've developed a variety of strategies to address these challenges, which I'll discuss more. This is a very busy slide, so I will warn you I'm not gonna go through everything here, but I really wanted to illustrate the complexity of our power supply forecasts. What this is showing for both Hetch Hetchy on the left and Clean Power SF on the right is a portion of their annual operating expenses. Specifically, it's the portion that we do for power supply or power delivery that is not owned by the SFPUC that we purchase from other, other entities. I wanna point out a few things. First, you can see going from the historic to the forecasted side, which is the little dashed line dividing, our costs have grown enormously in the past few years, more than doubling since 2020 for both programs. Uh, in Hetch Hetchy, the green bars represent the power, the costs we pay to PG&E to distribute our electricity here to our customers in San Francisco. Those rose by a lot in 2022 due to a new regulatory framework, and we don't see them going down anytime soon. In both programs, the purple bars represent a concept called resource adequacy or capacity, which is a growing issue for us here at the SFPUC as well as in the whole state. The idea, and I'm gonna oversimplify this a lot, the idea of resource adequacy is it's a regulatory requirement to make sure that all power utilities have enough local stable power to keep the grid balanced and prevent brownouts. It's a great idea, but the way it's implemented is very challenging for us. There's really not enough resource adequacy attribute around the entire state for all the utilities that need it. And so that's leading to really high prices when we have to go out to market and procure it. Moreover, the resource adequacy regulatory framework is completely changing in the next couple of years. Totally new way of looking at things that's really complicating our ability to forecast those costs. To project out this portion of the plan, because it is so complicated and has so many moving pieces, we work very closely with dedicated teams of experts in the power enterprise. They're heavily involved in this portion. We make conservative assumptions about price. We do not choose a favorable price. We always say, let's, let's err on the side of a higher one when we assume things and we add a buffer for risk. The red bars represent a power supply contingency. That's a budget above and beyond what we forecast that we hope will go unspent, but we include there in the budget so that if we need in an emergency situation to procure power, we can make sure we have the budget available so we can keep things flowing and keep the lights on in San Francisco. While we expect that costs may start to level out in the 10-year period, we don't expect to return to the cheaper days of just a few years ago. This is a new reality facing not just the power enterprise, but all power providers in the, in the state and country. Here is Hetch Hetchy's detailed 10-year financial plan. As with wastewater, I'm showing the detail here, but I've pulled out a few key areas to discuss on the next few slides. The big cost drivers in Hetch Hetchy are its power supply, which we just talked about, as well as a growing capital plan to serve new customers. 
This is the Hetch Hetchy average residential bill. On the left, you've got the growth over the 10-year period, as, and on the right, you've got a comparison to PG&E, since as I've mentioned, we are not a monopoly provider, and it's important that we keep an eye on that. We are forecasting at that table at the bottom some large percentage rate increases for our retail rate customers over the next few years. That's really driven by a need to catch up to those big increases in expenses we just talked about. The final rate proposal for the next fiscal year will be brought to this commission later in the spring. It's not yet adopted. Even with that large increase, however, Hetch Hetchy Power continues to provide an incredible power, uh, an incredible value. You can see that on the rightmost graph, the comparison to PG&E. After a 14% rate increase and then a 10% rate increase, we will still be on average 30% below a PG&E bill for the same usage for the same customer. I'll also mention that the table shows the general use rate increase just for context in our last power rate study. This is a rate charge to certain municipal customers who were under cost of service. We are bringing them up to the same cost as everybody else so they will be on the same rate it schedules. So those percentage increases do look high, but they're really coming from a very low base. And while it's not shown on the graph, they pay much lower rates than even our retail customers, sometimes as much as half as much. So they are also receiving really excellent savings despite the big percentage increases. Finally, here's Clean Power SF's financial plan. Purchase power supply, which we talked about in a prior slide, represents 90% of the program's costs. Because that's substantially different than any of our other enterprises, we've developed different financial metrics to better fit the program's unique circumstances. In particular, we created a distinct reserves policy for Clean Power SF during the last power rate study. This policy aims to increase our fund balances in order to meet a, provide a greater cushion for these cost fluctuations that are outside of our control. Over three years, the policy required that we get to a minimum of 150 days cash on hand, so that's we can operate for 150 days without getting a dollar of revenue. And we needed a target of 180 days cash on hand. These are shown in the graph as the black line, that's the minimum, and the purple line as the target. Meeting these goals during a time that our costs have also been increasing has been incredibly challenging. And as a reminder, we don't, opt out, we don't operate in a vacuum. Clean Power SF customers could opt out and go back to PG&E at any time. So we can't just keep, keep raising rates without looking at that. As shown in the graph and table, we are forecasting to meet the required minimum reserve levels of 150 days cash on hand next fiscal year and to hit the target by fiscal year ending 2026, the second year of the budget. Here's what that means for customer bills. As a reminder, we only control the generation portion of the bill. That's the green red wedge in all these charts. The remainder of the bill is rates set by PG&E or fees paid to PG&E. Rates for next fiscal year, like Hetch Hetchy, have not been adopted, so we'll be back before you later this spring to do so. But at this time, we're forecasting a 12% generation rate increase, which is driven by that need to build reserves. This equates to a 5% increase in the total bill when you factor in the PG&E portion. After this increase, as shown in the graph on the right, we expect that our customers will be paying about the same as they would with PG&E. We know that PG&E's very large rate increases over the past few years, which we cannot control, have been a real challenge for customers. We take these impacts seriously, but we also know we need to put Clean Power SF on a strong, sustainable financial footing so that it can continue to be a going concern over the next 10 years. Well, sorry, the next forever. Uh, 
Clean Power SF's existence and its renewable energy supply is crucial to the city being able to meet its climate goals. And we are actually very proud that even though this program has only existed for eight years, we're coming up on a strong financial footing with competitive rates and, that, and, a, and a, uh, reserves that are strong and will put us in a good place so that we can continue our operations and scale up to meet our targets of 100% renewable power. That is my final slide, and I will happily take any questions. Well, thank you, Aaron. Um, I have a few comments, and, and also thank you, uh, Ms. Hom, Ms. Bush, um, all, all three of you for these presentations. I mean, this is a, a major re responsibility, not just for all of you of the staff and the workers, but you know, for us as, as commissioners. And um, as I said, during the extensive hearings that we went through um, in the last few weeks, if there was any um, anything that I think the general public or uh, even myself, uh, myself as a commissioner, would have um, would have wanted to put in a box, it would have been. Um, you know, the, the budget hearings. It's, you know, there's a thing about democracy where, you know, you have to have these budget hearings and not only do you go through the money and, 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 and budgets and how much it all costs, you also, um, you know, are explaining, you know, how the infrastructure works, what the policies are, and, and those, those many hours that we've spent leading up to this summary um, is, is probably, in a nutshell, probably the best way to look at what this important agency does. And any student of government, I'd say, you know, if you have nothing to do and you can't sleep some night and you still want to get educated, you know, put on the C-SPAN or the, um, the SF TV and, and listen to the staff, you know, talk about what we do and what we want. Because, you know, this here, um, you know, people do talk about infrastructure and uh, this, this is a city that invests in itself and, and doesn't turn into um, a place that lets things rot and, and care about its citizens. So there's a lot of responsibility and just walking through all of this, I, I just, I, I just, I just want to thank you. I, I, I do want to emphasize that um, I think that, you know, in the midst of all this responsibility, the thing that is um, so important to understand and know is the the 10 year and further aspect of it. I mean, even the, you know, something that doesn't seem that big, um, a relationship with the school district, that's a 40 year partnership, but it's not a static partnership. It's got a beginning, it doesn't have a beginning or an end. It's something that just absolutely continues. And the fact that there's a 10 year budget, I mean, there's so many cities, there's so many agencies, so many even private businesses that, boy, if they can get through one year, man, let's, let's project the second year, you know, they're really thinking they're doing a good job. The fact that we are sitting here looking at this type of a length is, is, a, is a real statement to, um, uh, to being a responsible agency, and the work that's done into that is, um, um, I, I just want to say, uh, you know, thank you, and I'm proud that I can... Um, you know, be part of the decision makers that are, you know, going to be monitoring and looking at this, not just today and the vote that we are most likely going to take to uh, move this forward towards the mayor's office and the board of supervisors, but um, as a continuing, um, as a continuing process as we meet every two weeks, um, which is what our jobs are. So that's a long way of my saying thank you and acknowledging what exactly we are doing here. Um, today as commissioners and as the city. And I think I don't have any specific questions other than what we had done over the last uh, few sessions. So that being said, Commissioner Ajami, thank you. Thank you, Ms. Kordinova, for your presentation. I really appreciate it. Um, I want to go back to slide 29. You said something which I um, want to um, provide you some context there. Um, 
So on the projection of um, retail, uh, sorry, wholesale water uh, use, um, my team at Stanford had done tons of studies, and what we have seen is basically when you go down from a drought, you never bounce back to where you were before. It's just that's, that's what we have seen. We have studied a number of cities. Actually, we have studied the Bay Area as a whole. Um, you can put the population in there. You can just assume a lot of different things. But we basically don't see any. We see some rebound, but not a real full rebound. So I just want to make sure... You know, that 136.2 that you have there that, okay, so in four or five years we'll go back to that. I think that's very optimistic, which, you know, we can be very optimistic. That's fine. I just want to make sure we don't hang our hats on that optimism too much because obviously our financial health very much depends on those numbers, right? I totally understand your perspective that, you know, water, water um, projections are very different. They have different priorities and different objectives that they have to look into. And here we are looking at something that's, you know, it very much depends on how we can financially be sustainable. Um, I asked this last time too, and I assume, I'm hoping you have looked into this, or I, I'm, so, I'm hoping that you will bring it to me at some point to our, uh, us as a commission, I would like to see, like, in these uh, uncertainty bounds that you have on this slide, um, how does your slide 35, um, so keep with me, so taking this and then looking at slide 35 and see how your slide 30, sorry, 34, not 35. The, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just trying to see what is the interaction between these two. Yeah. If not just looking at your, uh, you know, uh, mean or median that you're looking at, but actually if you have uncertainty bounds that or do a sensitivity analysis to see where the bottom one is, where the top one is, how does this thing look? Mm -hmm. uh, just because for me it's much easier. And I know you mentioned that you, we are going to try very hard to make sure these numbers would, you know, not hit the, uh, you know, the... Uh, what do we call them, the affordability time, uh, like uh, projections that we have. But still, I want to make sure we can see what happens if, you know, the wholesale water rates go down, I mean, demand goes down, and also that low sliver that we have at the bottom of the retail, rail, uh, retail demand also goes down, and then all of a sudden, somebody has to pay for that debt, right? So... I keep repeating this because it is something that it's important for all of us to look into as we are uh, looking at this. Um, Is that a question? Excuse me, I'm not yeah. finished, if you don't mind. Um, so then when we are looking at... Um, um, lost giant in my thought. Um, so as I would like for, for us to see that, if you don't mind. Obviously, we are... I mean, I'm... I'm assuming you don't mind. I'm assuming you can be able to bring it back. And then we did have a conversation about revenue and revenue setting and um, the whole concept of potentially looking into decoupling. And I would like for us to actually, we don't need to tie it into this budget, but I would like for us to be able to kind of think about that as we are thinking about these changes in revenue. Because we also talked a little bit about operational cost increasing, not all of it is um, 
variable rate, but a lot of it is fixed rate, but also our variable rate is also increasing. So kind of trying to understand um, the variable portion of our rate is increasing, uh, or revenue is increasing too. Um, so kind of trying to understand how these pieces are fitting together as well would be very valuable. I would love to hear if you have any thoughts on the first comment and the second one, if you can sort of give me a sense of when we can see something like that would be great. I'm going to jump in here, Commissioner. I, sure. I made a commitment to you that we would do yes, so. Yes, thank you. We, okay, so we drop the second one. We'll yeah, I'm, stick I'll with be, the first I'll one. I'll be talking with staff. Let them go, get through the budget. I made a commitment Sounds to good. you about exploring this, and I will be back to you, okay? Fantastic. Thank you. So only the first one. Great. So um, looking specifically at our wholesale forecast, 100% agree with you that we do not expect full rebound from the drought. Part of the reason that number in four years, 136.2, is over what it was pre-drought is because there's also that long-term impact of some population growth being assumed. So we have baked in, especially in our wholesale forecast, where we have more irrigation. We know people rip out lawns and replace um, that with drought-tolerant uh, landscaping, that we are not assuming full rebound from the drought. Um, we do see some rebound, right? That's one of the nice things about the history here is you can see the last drought around 2014, and you can see wholesale dropping to what was an all-time low, that 110.8. They've never been lower than that. And they did come up, but as you can see, not all the way up. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that and see where it ends up. Um, the other thing that's nice about our wholesale customers is that we, per the contract with them, set our rates annually, and there is a mechanism in those rates that if we come in, if their sales are not high enough, they owe us money, and if their sales are higher than expected, we owe them money, a balancing account. So that does help mitigate some of the financial risk from our forecast year to year being off because we have that mechanism to make up for the difference. And I will say one thing specifically, though, on the interrelation between this forecast and our uh, affordability graph. I really do want to highlight, and I'll just flip back to the affordability graph here, that if this customer, which is an average customer with uh, assumed usage that flows out of the models, if this customer was to cut their usage by half, and then every customer in San Francisco cut their usage by half, we would collect the same amount of money, have to double our rates. But what that would mean is they'd end up in the exact same place because their volumes are half as much, but their rates are twice as high. So one thing I do want to say is that per capita conservation, individual customers conserving, is not a major factor in the trajectory of this. What is a major factor is if customers just disappear from our service area entirely or our costs go up. And so that's why I think focusing on what our capital plan looks like and seeing how we can control those costs, as well as looking at long-term population trends is definitely a big area that we're gonna be continuing to work on. Just a note on, on your comment on the wholesale rate. Um, you know, we, we are talking about 10-year periods, right? From 2014 and to 2023, there have been some population changes. Obviously, COVID definitely put a, you know, definitely a pin into everything that's normal. But, you know, the population growth uh, doesn't necessarily reflect a lot of demand growth. So, and I know you sort of, you sort of know this, but I want to make sure the public that they hear it's not just because exactly what you said, the per capita water use has been declining. So a lot of the new customers that come in basically eat into as saved by others. So it's kind of, that's important. And I think to your comment on 
that other slide, uh, slide 34, you're absolutely right. We can increase that rate, double them. So then those end up the same place. But just sitting on the end of the customer end, if I am reducing my use by half, right, and my bill is still increasing that much, it's very much of an in uh, disincentive, right? So that's why it's kind of, we have to think about this, all these things as a interconnected, integrated systems that are not independent from each other. And I know you're thinking about this, but I want to make sure we kind of, uh, you know, communicate that and remind ourselves that we need to kind of look at these things in so many different ways to make sure it captures. And I just want to also acknowledge the way yeah, you, you look at the energy piece. I mean, I would love to see if we do the same kind of graphs sometimes in the water side just because it's very... Uh, very different, right? It's a little bit more systematic. It's easier. It's like it's easier to track electrons. So um, thank you. And I also, before I just hand off the microphone, I just want to say I do appreciate all the work you guys put into this. Personally, it's a very um, useful process. I know it's very time consuming for the staff, but for us, it's such a useful process to be able to kind of have these dialogues, engage with this process, learn from you, and be able to provide comments. So I do appreciate all the hard work. The, the ones that, the, for, to you all that we see and to the ones behind the scenes that are working very hard. Thank you. Commissioner Maxwell. Thank you. I think sometimes, you know, we forget when we look at, think about wastewater, that San Franciscans are the only ones who pay for the mm -hmm. wastewater. Whereas when we look at clean water, we have 2.7 million people to share that cost with. And sometimes we, we forget that when we look at sewage cost. But you mentioned um, wastewater and water. Could you talk about that relationship? When the water comes in, um, people, do people pay for it? And when it goes out as wastewater, could you kind of talk about that relationship a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, the way our rates are structured, you have fixed monthly service charges. Those don't vary based on how much you use. But then on the water side, we have a water meter, and you get billed for the volume of water. We don't meter your sewage, but we do assume that if you take in a certain amount of water, most of that goes back into our sewer system. And so we multiply that by something that we call a flow factor, which it's, okay, some of that goes to irrigating your yard, that doesn't end up back down the drain, but the rest of it goes down the drain. And so that flow factor is how we get to the volumetric portion of the wastewater bill. There's also, I'll note, in our last rate study, we broke out into the wastewater and stormwater portions of the bill. So the stormwater portion of the charge isn't impacted by your water usage, just that wastewater portion. So then instead of me um, having my water go directly down the drain, if I capture it mm -hmm. and put it in the backyard, I don't get charged for that. Yeah, so we have a whole process where if you have a huge yard and are doing a ton of irrigation, or say you have on-site recycling of your water into non-potable water for flushing toilets, you can call up our customer service team and apply for a change to your flow factor, and we'll reflect that accurately in your billing. Great. And, and just to talk a little bit about the budget, the budget tells you what you're, where you put your money. It talks about your values and what you value. And so I think when I, when I think about um, the lens that we look through, um, you know, when we look through the lens of, of the environment and social lens, um, those are our priorities and it's reflected in our budget. And so I think it's, I, I do appreciate all of the, the talk about um, 
you know, our environment and, and what we're doing. I mean, you mentioned it, all of you have mentioned it quite a bit, and so I, I appreciate the mention, uh, and now we'll see what it looks like. So I, I appreciate that, and I think um, we have an outstanding group of people that work for San Francisco PUC. Mm -hmm. And financially, you all are certainly a part of that, and our policies kind of reflect um, where our money goes. So thank you for all your, your hard work. Commissioner Stacy. I will echo all of the thanks and the appreciation for the staff work. There was an incredible amount of information. I'm not going to give up my notebook yet. Um, and I, I really appreciate the transparency and the education um, that you give. I also, if I didn't say this the last time, I, I also really appreciate the thoughtful written comments um, that we get from the public. And we did get a number of comments about these demand forecasts. And I really, I think it's important to emphasize <clears throat> how carefully um, the PUC watches um, population growth, demand. This is not set in stone any given year. I, I think it's a constantly evolving um, piece of information that we're very conscious of, both for what we plan for as, as well as what we, what our plans cost. I think also uh, Bosca thinks that we are underestimating the um, water demand forecast for the wholesale customers. I know we had a, f a few comments uh, from uh, Mr. Warner and Mr. Dreckmeyer that, that we are overestimating. I, I also appreciate your emphasis that there's the water supply forecast for one purpose and the the budget and the financial forecast for another. So I, I, I just I want to um, uh, emphasize that it's important that this number is going to evolve as as our information changes. That that the PUC staff and the commission are watching all of these uh, changing, um, whether it's demographics or water wastewater uh, amounts. Um, but but I. I I think we, you have done a, a really great job in, in anticipating those forecasts. And it is so important um, to, to get it right for purposes of affordability and also for purposes of what we need and, and what we're planning for. So thank you. Commissioner Maxwell. And I would also like to, to say to those members of the public that you keep us on our toes. We appreciate all the comments, and sometimes we say, oh my goodness, here we go again. But <laughs> understand that that is important, and that's what democracy is all about. That's what it's about, and, and you make a difference. Sometimes you don't really recognize it, but trust me, our staff is saying, oh my God, Peter Dockmeyer is going to, or so-and-so is going to say something, we've got to have this right, and they're absolutely right. So please keep it up and know that we do appreciate it. And it's been mentioned by one of our commissioners, I think, a number of times about you, how important you are. And, and, and you really, it really does make a difference to us. So thank you. Thank you for all that you do, for coming. Um, thank you. So thank you. And before we turn it over to public comment, I also want to uh, you know, echo what I've already said. Thank you for all this work and everything that's done. And it sounds 
almost like some type of a culmination. Well, it's a culmination of this process, but you know, all five of us or four of us uh, and everybody else, we're gonna be here in two weeks from now, another two weeks from now, and this, like everybody says, this is ongoing and this is you know, really important work. And I'm, I'm also glad to see so many uh, folks here for public comment also. And Donna, I know when you call pu public comment, does the staff um, have the three minutes reneged, so, um, reneged, re-triggered uh, re up so we can, we can do it? Okay, great. So Donna, open up uh, items uh, 8 through 11 um, for public comment, please. Yeah, this is for public comment on budget items 8, 9, 10, and 11. I've received speaker cards from Tom Francis, Peter Druckmeyer, Dave Warner, Spreck Rosecrantz, Barbara Folger, Judy Irving, Mary Butterwork, and Francisco DaCosta. If you've not turned in a card, that's okay. If you could just line up against the wall um, and wait for your turn. Right. Mr. Francis. Consider being called. Just please come to the microphone. Welcome. Uh, good morning, uh, commissioners. My name is Tom Francis. I'm the Water Resources Manager at Bosca. I want to start out by saying that Bosca supports the budget that SAPUC staff proposed uh, for both the water enterprise and for the Hetch Hetchy enterprise. Certainly you have a great financial team. That was kind of off the script here. Uh, we're pleased to see that the inclusion of a robust list of projects is present, uh, as well as programs. It's a great 10-year CIP. Uh, Bosca has closely reviewed the proposed 10-year CIP, uh, and we provided comments to the commission through a February 5th letter. Uh, the comment letter identified five specific recommendations. Granted, the, uh, we want the commissioners to consider those recommendations as part of our or your action today. Uh, yesterday, Bosca received a staff response to the comment letter that we drafted. It provided further detail in reply to Bosca's recommendations, but it rejected all of Bosca's recommendations. We urge the commission to consider this, and especially in light of the staff response, which Hopefully you were provided as well. Uh, in particular, Bosca remains concerned with one response. It's, it's to the first recommendation we made, and it's related to the Capital Planning Improvements Initiative. Bosca is very supportive of that initiative. I, I give credit to your general manager and your deputy general manager. That was a wonderful idea. I think it's resulted in a lot of good things for the SFPUC and for Bosca. Uh, specifically, we want an annual report to the Commission on the Capital Planning Improvements Initiative. We think you as commissioners would benefit from that. It should include key metrics that will enable the Commission and Bosca the ability to identify how well or, or not well the initiative is achieving its goals, which include removing barrier, barriers to project deliverability, addressing staff challenges, things that you've discussed today. In response to Bosca, the SFPUC staff stated that the initiative is focused on process improvements and alignment across enterprises. It includes, or it will include a brief yearly narrative to you folks, similar to what you received in September of this past year. Uh, unfortunately, that was, in our view, short. It was two pages in length, um, a nice little narrative. We think you need a report. So in, in conclusion, our response from staff that we received was a bit troubling. We believe that Bosca, or we as Bosca believe that a yearly report that includes tracking metrics is appropriate, and we continue to recommend the commission direct staff accordingly as part of your action today. 
Uh, thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello, Peter Dreckmeyer, Tuolumne River Trust. Thank you for the three minutes. Um, thank you for the kind words earlier. Um, I sent you a letter yesterday. It sounds like some of you have read it. I appreciate that. And I, I started by acknowledging that I think staff really did do a great job putting together the budget. Um, it was obviously a lot of work, and it's got a lot more detail, more transparent. Um, and I know that they're working with information that they're presented sometimes on data and assumptions that I don't always agree with. <clears throat> um, my big question is how did sales increase 9MGD from last year to this year, looking out 10 years, when sales last year were at almost an all-time low, off by 1MGD, and <clears throat> the, st the State um, Department of Finance uh, reduced population growth projections. So I would encourage you to, to look into that. Um, another big change from last year is looking out 20 years, the average combined water and wastewater bill has increased 43% from last year to this year. So that's kind of the magnitude of the, uh, the budget impact on ratepayers. And I know that you all have inherited a position that has been building for probably 50 years. Uh, that past leadership has kind of kicked the can down the road. A lot of um, ongoing maintenance wasn't happening, and we had to catch up with water back starting in 2008, and now it's sewer. So I want to encourage you to not <laughs> leave that legacy for, for future commissioners, and it's the alternative water supply plan that could do that. Now, as mentioned earlier, there are two sets of demand projections. One is the outside envelope. We want to make sure we don't run out of water which the Urban Water Management Plan uses. Um, the other is finance, which has always been much closer. But the alternative water supply plan is where it integrates those together. Because if you were to develop the 92 MGD to 122 MGD, that would cost between 19 billion and $25 billion. It would double the budget. Now, we can show that at demand of 200 MGD or lower, uh, which is what, what it's been for the last nine years, with the Bay Delta plan implemented in place, without any rationing, and without developing any alternative water supplies, you can make it through a repeat of the drought of record, six years. Any other water agency would plan for that, and they'd say, hey, we're in great shape. Um, with rationing and 25 MGD, you can make it through eight years. And that 25 MGD should be recycled water that does the denitrification. You get the, the dual uh, benefit of that. We're all good. Thank you. Hi, thank you guys for your wonderful comments and questions. Uh, uh, I'd also just say I think the team is talented, and I'll just use the examples I thought. Um, uh, Ms. Bush's remark on the Commissioner Stacy's question about the staffing and how you deal with the salary savings is not only was it a good answer, but the model they used for modeling that was quite good, so tremendous. However, it doesn't really change my view of things, and I thought, unfortunately, Ms. Bush's answer on risk was not, it was a great question, but it, she sort of left us with, well, I don't sleep at night, and that's not a good answer. What I would have really liked to hear for an answer is, 
okay, yes, we did model this, and here's what we found, here's what the numbers showed. And then that gives you a lot more confidence that a serious risk analysis has been done. So I don't walk away from this meeting thinking that risk has been mitigated, and to bundle in another comment, they use their affordability model with population growth, as, or not population, housing growth. And so if they miss their housing growth by 5%, you'll see the rates go up. Uh, the other one is that came up with your great question was uh, sewers. If people come up with a lot of um, home recycling, then there's gonna be a problem with the sewer rates. So anyway, that's number one, I'm gonna run out of time. Uh, number two is uh, to Commissioner Stacy's question about reevaluating, which is a great question or a great comment. But I would say, Unfortunately, the slide that showed that expenses are growing 18% in the next two years and only 1.5% of that is new projects is the challenge that we right now don't have much flexibility to change the next two years. And so that's the long-term nature of these investments is to me what the risk is. And that goes to my third comment, which is, and I really do admire both uh, uh, Ms. Corvinova and Ms. Bush, and they were gracious enough to meet with me once, um, the short versus long. I think the short-term risk is much more manageable. We have enough cash on hand, there are things we can do in the short term, but the fact that we get this debt, and once you get this debt, hmm, we're stuck. And that's, that's the risk and the long-term risk. And the fourth point is to just remind you, this plan, the 8.1% averaging over 10 years, is up from 6.6% from last year. So there is a, another rate increase. And I think Mr. Dreckmeyer mentioned 43% jump over the two plans. I know, I think it went from 90% to 16% growth over 10 years. Uh, well, I'll skip that one. Um, the other one, and I've covered that. So the only thing I really add is, you know, and I, and I apologize for this comment, but, you know, Miss um, Corvinova said, well, we really hope we can do this or that. And as a CFO, I would never let someone get away with the hope comment. It's like, okay, let's go back and rework the plan, and let's use hope to say we don't have to further increase this, not hope to say we can save more money. And the last thing I'll throw out, and this is my ignorance. Thank you. Hello, commissioners. My name is Judy Irving. I am a bay swimmer and an independent filmmaker. I just made a movie about bay swimming called Cold Refuge, and I love it, but I don't love it when I'm swimming through an algae bloom. Um, I'm glad that you have a plan to remove nitrogen from the water. The alternative water supply plan, the $1.2 billion plan, but I'm afraid that you'll never get to uh, make it real because your basic budget is supersized and your, your assumptions are supersized. Two of the assumptions that are way too big are your design drought, eight and a half years of drought, which with public records requests, people found out would not happen once in 25,000 years. And the second is um, assuming that the population is going to go up. That also is not necessarily true. So you've got these assumptions, and in the past, 
the way the, the PUC has operated, the assumptions that they've made have been off by about 25%, just regularly off. So I would encourage you to take at least a year off that design drought, get more water for the rivers, get more water for the, the, the people of San Francisco, and then you might be able to actually um, fund these alternative water supply projects that are, are way down the road for which you are all, already charging ratepayers uh, money for. Another thing that I, 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 I don't appreciate as a ratepayer is that I do, um, I'm very careful about water. And when we were super careful about water during the drought, we were rewarded with higher rates. That was a drought surcharge. That doesn't go down well with people. So you have a, an enormous budget. It's, it's, out, it, it's way, way above anything that you've had before. You have debt service that's way over half of all the money that you have to spend. If something goes wrong, we are going to have to pay, and we're having to, to pay anyway in your 10-year in your predictions. Just be careful. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Barbara Folger. My husband and I have lived in our present address in Presidio Heights for 52 years. This is about aging infrastructure and budget. I have tried many times to get the water supply pipes on our block, which are original and over 100 years old, replaced. As pipes deteriorate, the insides crumble, and all that stuff flows in with the water into our house. I have a particulate fi filter. This is only two months old. After four months, it's black. I also have to have another filter in the kitchen to filter out more solids that get through the first filter. This is the water we use for our drinking and cooking. I can afford to buy and replace filters, but many in San Francisco cannot. Their water needs to be clean too. A few years ago, the sewer lines in our neighborhood were replaced. The workers told me they had to be extremely careful when working around the old supply line pipes because they were so thin they would fall apart if even nicked by the crew. Since the streets were already open, I asked the water department to replace the supply pipes. Nothing was done, and the streets were paved over. Only half the responsibility of the water department was seen to. Don't water supply and sewer go hand in hand? There is no need to rip up the streets two and three times when all repairs can be done the first time. This uses up other city resources as well. Our own city budget needs a reduction too. Knowing that there are original supply pipes all over our city, you can also guess that there are lots of leaks. Not only is this lost water is one of the causes of sinkholes in our streets, these sinkholes are repaired, but many of them reappear, reappear in the same spot. It takes multiple city departments to repair them and then repair again. Is plain whack-a-mole an efficient use of SPUC funds and the city's funds? Please streamline the replacement of sewer and supply pipes and work with other city departments to save ratepayer dollars, other city department dollars, and more important, 
provide clean water to everyone in San Francisco. Other cities do this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, public comment on items 8 through 11, the budgets. Good afternoon. My name is Mary Butterwick. I'm a longtime resident of San Francisco. I'm alarmed that the commission is facing a real fiscal crisis due to long deferred maintenance, over projected numbers, increased costs, and declining sales. In reviewing the proposed budget for possible approval, please consider the following. As a retiree on a fixed income, I am shocked to learn that my water sewer rates are likely to triple in the next 15 years with 8% average increases each year. How can low-income families possibly afford these increases? The Wastewater Nutrient Reduction Program at $1 billion is by far the most expensive capital project in the proposed budget. There is enormous potential for using recycled wastewater to reduce the nutrient load to the bay. Reuse needs to be a top priority for this important capital project. Within the next 10 years, debt service will account for more than half of the estimated cost for the water and sewer enterprises. This amount of debt service may severely constrain the Commission's ability to fund future projects. For instance, the alternative water supply plan is not included in the proposed budget. The projected water supply need is driven by the Commission's extremely conservative 8.5-year design drought. I urge you to direct your staff to analyze flows using a 7.5-year <clears throat> design drought and realistic demand projections, and then present the results to the public. I do not believe that ratepayers, such as myself, should have to invest in very expensive alternative water supplies that will not be needed. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Denise Louie again. Really, thank you for the opportunity to speak today. This is my third trip to the mic. Okay, so I think I'll start with the most important topic here. It's not clear whether the emergency firefighting water supply pipelines for the entire Richmond District west of 12th Avenue and the outer Sunset District north of Lawton are included in the capital plan. So I urge you, I urge you to ensure that the pipelines are included and prioritized in, in the budget um, because, as I've heard you speak about climate change, the city's dense stands of drought-stressed trees are like matchsticks after long months of no precipitation and in the heat at the end of summer. Okay, so the pipelines were supposed to have been funded by 2020 Prop B money, but are now unfunded. So my second point is that my quality of life has continued to diminish. Now I'm a complete miser when it comes to heating my home or using water. Yet my PG&E bill recently and surprisingly tripled and my water bill keeps increasing. 
So, you know, with the com combination of these increasing utility bills is just, can I speak for everyone that, you know, it means less money for everything else. It means a, a decline in the quality of life. Okay, so. Thirdly, one clear way to save money is to withdraw your lawsuits and volunteer agreements and let the State Water Board uh, take urgently needed measures to save the Bay Delta ecosystem from total collapse. Please tell us how much have related staff and attorneys cost us already? Thank you. Thank you. Commissioners, I'm asking you a question. Who will speak for the salmon? So I see these presentations, and I want to ask you, why are you not doing something for the salmon? And I want to ask you, how much do you pay for the water in the Tuolumne River? And how much do you charge others? And we're asking you to figure out the deferred maintenance on your dams. You are looking at things that should be looked at, but you don't look at it. Why don't you talk about the fires? What have you done to mitigate the fires? What have you done about the seawall and sea rise? What are you doing about the force main at Marine Street that has a band-aid? So, you can uh, cook up figures and it's like, you know, going to an accountant and you can go to 10 accountants and each one will give you a different type of this. Commissioners, you have to ask yourself, what is viable and sustainable? And your staff has to ask themselves if they have empathy for the indigenous people, if they have empathy for those who live on a fixed budget, if they have empathy for our infants, our children, our youth, our elders, those with compromised health. We have to ask ourselves, why aren't we replacing the pipelines when we have the money? Why are we not doing the right thing? And why aren't we having a dialogue with the indigenous people. Water is life. Thank you very much. Thank you. Are there any more? Can I use this thing? You, this is for the microphone. You're going to speak about items 8 through 11, correct? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and I, I was hoping to project um, a... It is working. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Spreck Rosecrans, Restore Hatchachi, thank you for the opportunity to speak. Uh, the budget is an impressive piece of work, 
uh, thanks to the staff for their work and thanks to you, the commission, for reviewing it and to everybody for the very serious responsibility of providing the services of providing water and power and sewer and everything that the, the PUC does. It's a, an important public service and I'm mindful, uh, I, I would thank uh, Commissioner Maxwell for her comments that uh, it's okay, you know, here we go again on from public comment and, and that sort of stuff. I uh, appreciate that and I also appreciate uh, Commissioner Stacy's comments about, well, the, we have to keep reviewing this as we go and in in that way, I want to be a little bit of a broken record on, on groundwater. And we have uh, on the screen here uh, the groundwater banking projects undertaken in the last 30 years throughout the state and how it is the most cost-effective opportunity for improving water supply. And I know that the general manager has, has indicated he's going to look into it. Boscus indicated they're going to look into it a little bit more. The trick is to get Turlock and maybe Modesto and others to agree, but other agencies throughout California have successfully done it, and I urge you to try and get the water, protect your ratepayers. Um, I note that uh, in most cases, it's an exchange, so you're still drinking the surface water. That's not always the case. Um, uh, you folks have a great program, your Southeast Water, water Banking Program, in what Coleman, Daly City, uh, at 60,000 acre feet of storage is a great program, but there's a lot more to be found out in the Central Valley. Um, so I urge you to look into that uh, over the next few years and see if you can get some low cost water to uh, improve supply and protect your ratepayers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Public comment, please. Hello, Commissioners. Um, my name is Jacob Evans. I'm an organizer with Sierra Club California. Thank you for the opportunity to comment. The affordability of this $11.8 billion plan relies on population growth and water demand projections that are difficult to be confident in. For the last nine years, water deliveries have been under 200 million gallons per day, reaching 172 million ga gallons per day this last year. California Department of Finance provides population growth projections downward in 2023. If water rates are projected to double by 2034, water use per capita will decrease as San Franciscans attempt to lower their rising water bills. And despite these factors, the plan relies on increased water demand, projecting a demand of 197 million gallons per day in 2034. It sets up an affordability crisis. Currently, monthly water sewer rates are projected to reach $436 in 2044, within 1% of the affordability target. If water demand has been overprojected, affordability targets will certainly be surpassed. Alternative water supply plans intensify this precarious scenario. The design drought predicates the need for AWS projects. And based on data shared in presentations, developing these AWS projects would cost between 19 and 25 billion dollars. It is unsustainable to finance these, pro these projects through rate increases on top of the rate tripling by 2044 that is already projected. SFPUC needs to re-examine the design drought, preparing for an 8.5 year mega drought that is estimated to occur once every 25,000 years will put SFPUC on a track to financial crisis and ratepayers will be burdened with that cost. If even, if even one year is shaved off of the design drought and more realistic water demand projections under 200 million gallons per day are used, 69 to 98 million, ga million gallons per day less water alternative water supply will be needed, saving the SFPC billions. Thank you all. Thank you. Is there any more public comment? 
Seeing none, um, we will, and thank you for coming and for that public comment. So seeing that, we are going to be taking in order, not all together, but uh, we'll be taking four separate votes, um, starting with item eight, which is the biennial operating budget. So if I could have a motion and second for item number eight, please. I, I have a comment. We have comments. Commissioner Ajami. A uh, couple of things. First of all, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. It's always wonderful to hear comments and, um, you know, pushback and feedback. And I always tell my students feedback is a gift um, if you actually approach it in the right way. Um, and I do appreciate that. The only thing I want to say is um, feedback needs to be very direct to us not to staff, and that is very important because I don't like our staff to be called by name, by in person, like this person said this and this is not correct. I understand and appreciate what you're trying to convey to us, but I do not want my staff to be named um, as part of the process. So just wanna put this out there because I think it's important. Um, and I know we all appreciate what the staff is doing, and just recall, remember that they are dealing with, a, a, you know, 2.7, in some cases, 2.7 million people, and we want to make sure this is a very respectful dialogue in, in every way, and you want to make sure they're encouraged to listen to your feedback and look back and say how they can improve it. Um, so that's, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. I'll repeat, we will, any other comments? Item eight, which will be the biannual budget, we will be taking a, I will entertain a motion in a second. I move to approve. Second. We have a roll call, please, on item eight. President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have four ayes. Item number 10, which is the two-year capital I'm budget. I'm sorry, item nine. nine. Item number nine, which is the two-year capital budget. Could I have a motion and second, please? Move to approve item number nine. Second. We have the roll call, please. President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. Four ayes. Item nine passes. Item 10, which is the 10-year capital plan. Could I also have a motion and a second, please? Move to adopt. Second. There's been a motion and a second. Can we have a roll call on item 10, please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. We have four ayes. Item 10 passes. Item 11, which is the 10-year financial plan. Can I have a motion and a second, please? Move to approve item number 11. Second. So motion and second. Can we have the roll call for item 11, please? Commissioner Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have four ayes. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. And um, all four of those items have been passed, and that part of the major work that we are doing is done. Now we will continue. So next item is uh, communications. In, for information, is there any communications that we need to know or public comments? Seeing none, um, then um, do we have, uh, what is our next item here? Our next item is um, 
item is item for 13. commissioner in initiated items item 13 please are there any issues that um, yeah, I have a comment on that and and I, I want to note uh, excuse me commissioner um, our general manager has to leave mr. Ritchie will come to the dais thank you uh, commissioner Ajami so um, we had this conversation I'm actually sad to see all the member of the public left but um, we did have this conversation before to uh, think about moving uh, to adding um, remote public comment to our agenda. Um, I, I do think you know we are very different from a lot of other commissions in the, in the city. We have <coughs> customers beyond our own seven by seven uh, borders. <coughs> And there are people who live in the South Bay or, they ha or the peninsula that they have to drive here. I think it just makes, and also we have a team up in the mountains, uh, up in the watershed. I mean, we are serving a broad range of communities, and I think it's important for us to make sure we are accessible, people can reach, to, reach out, uh, reach the committee, commission, talk to us when they need to. So I would like for us to consider to actually add remote public comment to um, to our public comments. Um, and uh, I don't so know I how. Would, so I would suggest mm -hmm. that what we do is that you make a motion to that effect in a second so that we can talk about that and, and debate it um, uh, for a vote if you're going to make that proposal. Okay. Oh, we can calendar that is what we can say. Yeah, I don't think we and can And then we make... can have that discussion at that time. Right. We don't have to do it now? Okay, that's okay. correct. Thank you. That would be great. Okay, so we'll be duly noted that uh, Commissioner Ajami is asking for that to be agended for the next meeting. Okay. We good? Okay. Um, do we need public comment on that since that has been um, discussed and it's uh, been put together? Yes. Okay, so let us, um, now that everybody has left, as you yeah. were mentioning, we will get the, um, the public comment item uh, on, for public comment. I wanted to encourage Is there anybody um, in the general public that is, uh, got, that is streaming this on their iPhone as they walk to their parking car? Um, seeing none, um, then we shall move forward. Um, so why don't, uh, why don't we read, uh, so the next item is why don't we read the matters to be heard during closed session. This is public comment on the matter to be heard during closed session, which is item number 16, Conference with Legal Counsel, Ralph Bauer et al. versus City and County of San Francisco, proposed settlement of the personal injury claims with the City and County of San Francisco to pay plaintiff Adian Galper 400000 and plaintiff Corey Marriott 400000 in exchange for full and final release Release is subject to final approval by the Board of Supervisors. Okay, is there any public comment on the matters to be addressed during closed session? Seeing none, let's have a motion as to whether or not to assert the attorney-client privilege regarding these matters. Um, so moved. I'll second. Motion and second to, um, can we have the roll call please? President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Jami? Aye. Commissioner Stacy, aye. We have four ayes. Okay, so we'll go into closed session upon uh, logistics. Thank Please you. Please stand by.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
So the, the commission is recommending that, uh, that the board approve the settlement, which uh, in, in item 15. So is there a motion to? Item 16. Item uh, 16, I'm sorry. Um, motion uh, whether or not to disclose the discussions during the closed session. Is there a motion? I'll move not to disclose. Second. Motion second, not to disclose discussions. Roll call, please. President Paulson? Aye. Commissioner Maxwell? Aye. Commissioner Stacy? Aye. You have three ayes. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you very much. Yes. I thought I'd just. Yes. Thank you. Item 16 has been.